This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here with my wonderful sidekicks. <laughs> Terry and Jeff. I've never called you my sidekicks. You really got a kick out of that. Why were you giggling? I just think that's funny. Um, I haven't kicked you for years. What do you mean, kicked? Sidekicks. Oh. All right, cool. Top of the morning to you, man. Man, oh man, oh man. Day six, six days left. Mmm. Six more days. Hmm. Is that it? Yeah. Booze counting. One week from today, we could know who's president. But we might not also know with the possibility of, you know, them not getting enough votes. We may have a hanging chad. One of them might be in prison. One one, one or two. Two might be in prison. Um, it's, it's six more days, folks. I mean, who can't make it six more days? That sounded weird. We got a great uh, – we got a great – lineup of guests today, including we're talking about the impact religion has on the economy in the United States. If you if you collected all of the financial impact that the religions in the United States have, it would equal the 15th biggest economy in the world, about one point two trillion dollars of financial impact coming from your churches on your corner. In fact, if you needed to go to Starbucks, you would have to pass, I think, like on average 13 churches to get to a Starbucks. Isn't there a Starbucks church now? Probably. There's Starbucks in churches. <laughs> really? Yeah, they need to generate some revenue. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's because... They're the biggest, 15th world, biggest economy. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to be talking about that because a lot of people are questioning, you know, why do we even need religions anymore? Because honestly, we shouldn't be giving them all these extra rights, religious rights, because they're just ways to discriminate. If you're going to discriminate, you know, there's no need to have these churches. <sighs> we'll get into the discussion with a professor from Georgetown University who's going to walk us through why religions matter. Whatever choice of religion you have, they matter. They influence. They do a lot of work to better the community that others aren't doing and that you probably can't just turn over to the government. It just doesn't work. Plus, it would cost $1.2 trillion minimum. Personally, I think it would cost about $5 trillion the way government runs. You know. Not to, not to be negative. So we'll get into that wonderful topic today. Plus, uh, you you won't believe this. Today is um, the the day of the dead. This is the Mexican Day of the Dead celebration. It's similar to other cultures' observances of the time honored tradition of paying homage and respect to those that have passed away. The Spanish tradition included festivals, parades, as well as gatherings of families at cemeteries to pray for their deceased loved ones at the end of the day. The, you know, it's just a big party for the dead. 
Also, Day of the Dead. Uh, we could talk political. <laughs> no, that'll be in six days. That's right. Six days would be the second Day of the Dead, Day of the Dead Revisited. It's also Cookie Monster Day. Hey, me just met you. And this is crazy. But you got cookies. Mm-hmm. So share it, maybe. It's hard to Cookie know. Monster's birthday. It's today. This little uh, cookie monster has an insatiable appetite for the uh, baked goods, preferably cookies. He's got a great song here. I didn't know that these were the words. I I thought it was I thought it was a whole different song, but this I, it does. It's called "Share It Maybe." Well, this is the original. Okay. Yeah. So maybe yeah, I, I'd share it. Maybe I'd share my cookie. Maybe. That's great. Good, good days. Good days. Happy Day of the Dead. Happy Cookie Monster Day. And happy six days to the big election. Um, so much going on. Again, we'll be talking religious value and its, its value and contribution to society. But before we get to all that fun, let's first turn it to Sadie Nielsen and find out the headlines of the day. Sadie, what's going on around the country? As the presidential race moves towards the finish line, each candidate is aggressively casting each other as a horrible choice for the White House. Making a positive case about their own qualifications and vision has become a secondary priority. It's an ugly conclusion to a contest featuring two of the most unpopular presidential candidates in modern American politics. The sexual assault accusations that have trailed Trump in the race... Race's closing weeks and a new FBI review into Clinton's email habits seem to likely only reinforce the public's negative perceptions, leaving the candidates to essentially argue to voters that they're the best of the two unappealing options. The surprise tweet from a little-used FBI account came about 1 p.m. Tuesday, announcing that the agency had published on its website 129 pages of internal documents related to a years-old investigation into former President Bill Clinton's pardon of a fugitive Democratic donor. The seemingly random reminder of one of the darkest chapters of the Clinton presidency a week before election drew an immediate rebuke from Hillary Clinton's campaign, with its spokesman's tweeting that the FBI's move was odd in asking whether the agency planned to publish unflattering records about the Republican candidate Donald Trump. In an 11-2 vote, the Washington, D.C. Council has approved the Death with Dignity Act, legislation that would allow physicians to prescribe fatal drugs to terminally ill patients who live in the city. Washington is now the sixth jurisdiction in the country to legalize such prescriptions. And finally... Yes. <laughs> um, in your candy news, I mm, suppose. Okay. So still a little post-Halloween news. Didn't know we had candy news. No, we do now. Okay. Um, a college student in Kansas returned to his car to find that a passing candy thief had stolen a Kit Kat bar <laughs> from his cup holder. Kansas State University Hunter Jobbins was shocked to return to his vehicle to find his snack had disappeared. Left my car for maybe 15 minutes in front of the dorms and I come back to this. College man, he said. The candy thief left behind a handwritten note on a napkin in place of the stolen candy, offering an apology for the theft. Saw Kit Kat in your cup holder. I love Kit Kats, so I checked your door and it was unlocked, the note read. Did not take anything other than the Kit Kat. I am sorry and hungry. That is a crime. Wow. Have you that had a, a Kit Kat bar? Yes, yes, <laughs> that I have. is a crime. Yeah, that's a good. That's a commercial right there. Give me a break. <laughs> Give me a break, man. Break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. Yeah. So desperate times call for desperate but measures. What though, a I kind, 
communicative thief. thief. Yeah. Many thieves won't leave you a note. That's true. But this is one that's looking out for you. Like, hey, from brother to brother. Hey, by the way, I didn't take anything else. I left your cell phone, your laptop. Yeah. I mean, I could have robbed The keys blind. to your car, too, were in there. Just thought I'd leave that. But I just really wanted the Kit Kat. P.S. I'm starving. <laughs> that's great. Wow. Man. You know it's one of his roommates. Or is it? Or is it? Excellent story. Thanks, Sadie. Uh, wow. How about Chicago Cubs? Nine to three, was it? Nine to three. Awesome. There, boy. It was over after the third inning. Yeah. You know, I've found that anytime, once you hit the grand salami, and once you hit that and pound the grand slam, it's over. I guarantee you those baseball commentators have come up with the statistic of who, what, how many teams have lost after hitting a grand slam. Yeah. You know they know that. Is the game tonight? Yes. And I'm hearing it may get a little rain. Really? In the later innings. Hmm. How horrible would that be to have a rain out or a delay? During in, game seven. In the eighth inning of game seven of the World Series. I mean, I guess it would be great for ratings. It would be even more frustrating if they just decided to end the game then. Ah, whoever had the highest score at the eighth well, inning Well, yeah. Yeah, they have the seven-inning rule, whatever it was in Little League Baseball. Once you did your seven innings, you're good. That's a complete game. Uh, it's, a, it's a big day um, because, well, maybe it's not a big day. Apparently, the FBI seemed to be in cahoots with the GOP because they just keep releasing more and more stories about the Clintons. From, what, decades ago? Decades ago. But there is, you know, when somebody asks for a Freedom of Information Act release of information, they got to release it. They just waited six days before to release it. But they would probably say, well, we've got to go through our process, and our process was done, and to hold on to it would be, you know, not right either. Now, I found this last night. Yeah. Now, it was in a story about, you know, people being affected by fake news and people reporting on fake news. There was a – there was – I saw a report that said Sean Hannity, number one uh, show on cable. And then that exact same day, Sean Hannity takes the bait at jumping on a fake story about on his, President Obama. his radio show. Yeah. And I, I, I read boom. some of the transcript of it, and it sort of jumped from the fake story to President Obama's going to jail in like a paragraph. Well, yeah. Like, that's, wow. <laughs> that's kind of how those shows work. That was intense. Um, he later retracted that, noticing it came from something like Humpty Dumpty News.com or something. <laughs> uh, but, uh, here's some other stories. It says the FBI, since, so, since Friday's development, that the FBI would be looking into more Hillary Clinton-related emails. Uh, the FBI has been investigating links between Donald Trump's former campaign manager and the Russian government. Mm. That's uh, Manafort. Yeah. The pit boss. Paul Manafort. That seems to be true. All the reporting around that. Even Manafort says it's not happening. NBC right. News says right. their sources right. say it does. Uh, FBI Director James Comey refused to go public with his investigation or with that investigation because he thought it would affect the election. Yeah, you don't want to affect the election. Now, that could be true. Comey's not confirming because he's not talking to anybody anymore. No. Um, that there are ties between a Trump computer server and a Russian bank. That one seems kind of weird. Okay. Kind of hedgy on the yeah. information. But, you know, cl- it says clouded by reasonable doubts. Um, and also another story that Trump used an obscure loophole to avoid paying tens of millions in yeah. taxes. 
That that was a big one too. That was hitting all the big. It was something his lawyer said, "Don't do this," and he did it anyways. At least that's what the story said. Right. The New York Times was big on that one. Yes. But if you look, it says sources close to the Trump mm-hmm. offices or whatever. So. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. And then uh, there's some more endorsements for the candidates. Okay. Good. Cur- good. Currently, uh, Hillary Clinton has over 200 newspapers that have endorsed her. Tons of people love Hillary. Do you know the number that Trump has? Uh, of newspapers? Yes. Or newspaper Editor- vendors? Editorial board, newspaper distributor, news paper sources. Boys? Could be. Could be okay. paper boys. Seven. It's eight. Oh, man. USA Today. No. Uh, what's oh, that horoscope? Well, what's that horoscope newspaper? USA Today actually endorsed nobody. Didn't Mad Magazine endorse him? No. Okay. He has, um, I guess, the National Enquirer. Oh, that's on his <laughs> yes. side. Doesn't he also have Trump News? Trump News well, endorsed it. Trump News, obviously. Yeah. The biggest name paper is the Las Vegas Review Journal, but that's owned by Sheldon Adelson, who's the one of the biggest yeah. Republican donors out there. Okay. Um, so the New York Daily News endorsed Hillary Clinton overnight. Also, the Hollywood uh, trade publication Variety, where everyone turns for their political news. <laughs> I'm just I don't know why they did that. Um, but uh, this this comes because the uh, a newspaper called the Crusader. Huh. Which is the official newspaper of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, but endorsed Trump overnight. The Daily Universe? So he's up to eight, though. No. <laughs> I mean, I think you have to look at it more like that's double what he had a couple months ago. He also has the Times-Gazette of Southern Ohio. Why? I wonder why these papers don't like him. The Waxahachie Daily Light in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, the San, well, this is St. Joseph News Press in California, hmm. the Santa Barbara News Press, also California. Um, small California papers seem to like them, so. Yeah. The News Sentinel in Indiana, the Daily Reflector in North Carolina, they, they went with Trump. Oh, That's they've good. got good circulation there. Yeah. So it's just, I don't know what the, the, the poll and benefit of a newspaper endorsement is. Well, I mean, I think if it was, if it were like the New York Times... I mean that has millions of readers, right? But where are they going to go? They have a they, they have a traditional sort of liberal lean, yeah. Which some people don't really consider a lean. They completely you know stand many, over there. back in the day, being liberal meant you were probably a communist. Yes. And now liberal means you're probably a Trump supporter. Because I mean, communist means you're probably a Trump supporter if you're pro pro Putin. And one soundbite we need to get to: Trump made a public service announcement last night. To make an important public service announcement. Because a lot of things have happened over the last few days. This is a message for any Democratic voter who have already cast their ballots for Hillary Clinton and who are having a bad case of buyer's remorse. In other words, you want to change your vote. Wisconsin is one of several states where you can change your early ballot if you think you've made a mistake. A lot of stuff has come out since you voted. So if you live here, or in Michigan, or Pennsylvania, or Minnesota, those four places, hmm. you can change your vote to Donald Trump will make America great again, okay? Well, what a great announcement. Right. In Wisconsin, there's a state law where early or absentee voters can cast a ballot up to three times, canceling their previous ballots. Well, aren't there some states where dead people can vote? Well, allegedly. 
<laughs> they can come back. Other states where you can do you can change your vote. I don't know if up to three times, but you can change your vote in Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, and Mississippi. Here is the crazy deal. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, he's the guy for the GOP. And yes. a lot of people in the GOP are voting for him. So he's legit in just simply that fact. Yes. And then Hillary, by the way, have you noticed, can I just say something very pro-Trump right now? He's been very disciplined the last four days. He has. Because he could have stepped all over himself. I heard someone equate it to, if you ever see like uh, someone who handles like falcons, right? They put a hood on the bird. A a falconer? What do they call those guys? A falconer, right? They put a hood on the animal to keep it from getting distracted. Right. When it's in large groups. When I was in elementary school, the the zoo would show up and they'd bring their bird of prey and they'd have a little hood on so the bird wouldn't get spooked. Right. And it would stay focused. Yeah. And some guy was a guy on NBC and he goes, I see they put a hood on Donald Trump. That's how he's he's focused. He's on message. There are lots of people with hoods that love Trump. (laughs) Apparently. But, got that but so that, I think that's what they've done. He's he's been incredibly disciplined, like really amazingly. They have the blinders on. He's but that, but that tells you how smart he is. He's also six days out, and he's like, shh. He's got a microphone in front of him every day. <laughs> it's amazing. Things can happen. And he's he's going up in some of the polls. An ABC poll out today is a tracking poll, so they look at it every day, and it uh, it has Trump rated more honest than Hillary Clinton. <laughs> but sure. Yeah. They had a whole article about how five people, this was, I think, in CNN, on CNN, five people in her administration or, or in her team have FBI investigations around them right now. Yes. That's a big deal. And that the FBI forgot to grab all of her assistance devices when they were doing the initial investigation oh, I into the email. How many of them have IRS investigations going on, though? Well, that'll happen when President Trump takes office, then the IRS will become a blunt yeah. object. Again. Yeah, the, the IRS has been very busy with other people, <laughs> uh, not the Clintons. Um, okay, fun stuff. It doesn't matter how it goes. It's going both ways, right? I mean, everybody's got, you know, bullets flying at their... And, and our friends in the Freedom Caucus, that small group of ultra-conservative senators, mm-hmm. they are going to meet today. Actually, members of the House, I believe what it is. Will, what will that do? What, this... um, they're just trying to have a, a planning meeting. Okay, good. They usually probably wouldn't meet before the election, but they're meeting now because it's it's, it's... important. One, one of the big things is Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House. He cast his vote. Yeah, he, he voted for Trump. Which is amazing. I mean, not well, really because he's he the voted, head of he the voted, GOP. He voted for the Republican Party, he right, said. Right, But he also kind of can't stand Donald Trump. Absolutely. Hmm. Well, the feeling's kind of mutual. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, I'm sure Donald would vote for him. Probably not. Ah. Six more days, folks. When we come back, we'll be talking about what is the value of religion? You know, there's obviously just, you know, the spiritual value, getting to heaven. What is that worth? Billions. However, According to a commission um, about uh, on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, many are saying religion is just another way to be intolerant. So should they be extended more rights? Well, we'll be talking with a professor from Georgetown University showing about one reason they're adding so much value to community that's not just spiritual. It has societal and economic value. We'll talk about that coming up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.
Earlier this month, 17 faith leaders from around America sent a letter to President Obama rejecting the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights report on religious freedom. The commission's chairman questioned the societal worth of religious freedom, calling it a hypocritical code for discrimination, intolerance and racism. That aside, uh, what is the actual monetary worth of U.S. religion in this country? The estimated annual worth of U.S. religion is at $1.2 trillion and could be considered the 15th largest economy in the world. Here to speak with us uh, is Dr. Brian Grimm, president of the Religious Freedom and Business Foundation and is an associate scholar at Georgetown University. He's on the line with us today to help us sort through some of this uh, the, the the religious freedom and the economics of it all. Dr. Brian Grimm, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great great to be with you, Matt. This is such an interesting topic. Um, again, religious freedom becoming more and more of an issue throughout the country, around the country. And I guess, um, you know, some of the recent comments from the commission's chairman uh, are the, on the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights report on religious freedom Basically, saying that religious, what really, what is its societal worth? I mean, it's creating quite a stir. It's bringing more and more discussion around this topic. Well, you're right, and the reason the reason that religious freedom has become such a controversial issue in public discussion uh, is in part because religion gets a lot of bad press, and there's not a lot of good press, you could say, through through the mainstream media. To counteract that, just you know, as an example, the media rightly but narrowly covers issues related to religion, such as the clergy sex abuse scandals mm. or religion-related terrorism. Um, but then the positive side often goes unreported, and, and that's uh, that's something of a change in media uh, in the past several decades. Because uh, just 20, 30 years ago, almost every major city had its own hometown newspaper. And at least every Sunday they had their own religion section covering, uh, you know, just reporting on what's, what people are doing, soup kitchens and uh, missionaries returning home and, and you know, other right. stories of interest showing the positive side. Uh, so it's really this new age of media that, that you know, as the slogan goes, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. Uh, you know, that sort of catches the attention. I mean, then— uh, so this news- this new study is bringing some balance to that um, to that narrative. I mean, it's societal worth because, and part of that with the um, same-sex marriage arguments and the religions fighting against uh, some of those decisions. And I mean, I guess it's been going on for years. Uh, you know, being forced to require birth control through health care, pro- providing health care, and and things like that. It's becoming. Um, it's becoming such a big issue, but then for all of a sudden, one of the leaders to to throw out the the or to question the religious the the worth societal value from religious freedom, it seems like it's taking it to a completely different level. Yeah, well, that's right, and I, I think that emphasizes the need to be able to explain to a generation, a number of whom are growing up not you know, in faith communities, uh, especially the younger millennial generation, um, if they're attached to religion, it might be more of a spiritual focus, and, and they're missing the big story of mm. uh, the many millions of different ways that uh, religion and people of faith associated with religious congregations 
in particular are um, making life better for everyone, whether you're a believer or not in society. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the interesting thing. Like, just morally, what would happen to us financially, economically? What would the cost be in so many different ways? And I guess that's a harder one to account for. But one thing that, that your study did get into is the monetary worth of U.S. religion um, on, in the United States. So first of all, I guess, talk to us about its economic impact of religion. What exactly, how, how big of an impact is it having, is religion having in the U.S.? Well, this the study, uh, which is published in the Interdisciplinary Journal of Research on Religion, uh, looks at three different ways that religion contributes to the social and economic life of, uh, of the United States. First is the very most fundamental level of congregations, and they contribute an estimated $418 billion of economic activity uh, uh, throughout the country. And, and if, if you begin with that, um, just thinking through what that might mean. I, just to give an example, it's sort of like counting up the value of love. But, you know, my daughter recently got married in Center City, Baltimore, and I can tell you exactly how much love <laughs> resulted in you know, flowers and wedding you know, spending and right. church venue uh, that wouldn't have been if, if there wasn't a church there for her to get married in. So so adding up these values, and, and so just as an example, there are— 344,000 congregations across the United States of all, uh, you know, faiths and denominations and religions. And of those, 320,000 recruit for outside uh, causes, such as the Red Cross, United Way, Big Brothers and Big Sisters. These aren't religious programs, but if you would lose these congregations, which are really social networking and um, and uh, recruitment hubs, in addition to being houses of worship and places for spiritual, um, you know, activity, uh, you so many volunteer organizations in the United States and others would uh, be without um, recruits. And just a couple other numbers: if you, if we wouldn't have faith communities, there'd be a hundred and thirty thousand less programs for alcohol and drug abuse recovery. Mm. These are carried out by local congregations. Uh, there's uh, 121,000 programs helping uh, and people with skills or training for jobs, and so those would all be gone. They're done through local congregations. And one that's a little bit counterintuitive, but uh, it makes sense, is that there are 26,000 congregation-based ministries to help people uh, infected with HIV/AIDS. So if you would uh, do that proportional to the number of people who are infected, that would be one congregational ministry for every 46 people infected with AIDS. Wow. With AIDS. So can you imagine if the government had to pick up all this, you know, all these programs? You know, first of all, you know, no, there's no one single organization, including the government, that could ever put all that together because that's, that's the, uh, you know, that's coming out of people's faith, their, mm. their belief that, you know, that our, our, the, as a believer, you're, the calling is not, uh, you know, just to uh, be heavenly minded, but also to be earthly good. To sort of flip that saying from Oliver Wendell Holmes, he uh, um, he uh, famously said that some people are so heavenly minded they're, that they're no earthly good. Mm. But this study really shows there's a lot of uh, earthly good in being heavenly minded. And the and how short sighted to think, yeah, I mean they're providing very little worth to society. When you tally up the number and just congregation wise, 
it's a $418 billion tab annually. Yeah, and and some people might say, well, you know, if, if we would just tax all, all that money that's oh. and, and all services coming through congregations, then we could take care of it otherwise. But, uh, you know, that that's first, so much of that work is already being taxed right. because the biggest expense for any uh, faith group is the personnel, you know, paying the salaries. Right. And, you know, every person, you know, that's paid, in a faith organization, they've got to pay federal tax, local tax, mm-hmm. security tax. You know, all those taxes are coming out. So, um, and then, then if you count up on top of that the values of these goods and services, it's uh, just tremendous. Oh. And, and and the yeah. volunteering. I mean, again, oh yeah. The, the, so this really could be value. The values could be tripled if you were actually having to pay dollar for dollar everybody to do this. But so much of this is being done by volunteers. Yeah, so much is being done by volunteers, and uh, but, but there's another side to it, even just the straight economic side that people don't often think about. So if you, uh, you know, someone, you know, all these hundreds of thousands of local congregations, uh, you know, they generally have a property. They generally are uh, paying for electricity, paying for heating, paying for somebody to, you know, push the snow off if you're in the north, or mm-hmm. you know, water the grass if you're in the south and you don't have snow. So, and then, um, you know, that's a lot of economic activity supporting all kinds of businesses from florists to uh, sound system engineers and organists. And, and, I mean, that's another amazing statistic that almost uh, every congregation provides uh, a venue for uh, non-religion-related music or cultural events. Mm. Uh, One of the... and so these are not only supporting things you might put dollars and cents to, but it's very hard to value that cultural uh, contribution. And just to give one number that I think is very telling, there are about 120,000 congregations uh, that report attracting visitors for their art or to see their art or architecture each year. That's nearly four times as many uh, museums as there are visited in the U.S. Hmm. all of last year. Wow. So, so so congregations, and some of these are beautiful. Um, I mean, you're in Provo. I mean, in Salt Lake City, you've yeah. got the, the temple, and there. I mean, there's uh, you know, in the LDS churches, temples across the, the nation. There's also uh, beautiful cathedrals, mm. Catholic cathedrals, uh, and and many uh, beautiful arche- you know works of architecture that wouldn't uh, be there if it weren't for faith. And and then surrounding them is green space and. And that's a, such a commodity in the in a center city, where you know the, uh, the inclination is to fill up every corner with <laughs> something that can pay you know uh, revenue or tax or right. bring in money. Uh, but that green space is what makes cities uh, livable. Yeah. And, uh, so that's another uh, you could say intangible but very clear value of um, what religion provides to a city. So of the one point. Two trillion dollars of monetary worth that religion brings. You're saying 418 billion of it comes from congregations. Um, we have to take a break soon. But what are the other two areas? I think you said there were three areas. Yeah. So the the other two. Areas, so with that congregation, it also includes schools that are attached to congregations. Okay. Such as elementary schools and daycare. Um, but then the other two uh, main sectors are larger. More national institutions such as healthcare systems, uh, higher education, 
universities, you know, from Jesuit affiliated Georgetown and Washington to BYU, affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Provo, and then their charities, uh, and uh, you know, they can range from very overtly religious charities to some that people don't think about, uh, but have a very clear um, religious uh, uh, connection, such as the Y, mm. Young Men's Christian Association. Uh, and then the last category of business, which is a very interesting category, and, and, uh, and I think we'll have a lot to talk about on that when we come back from after the break. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, a lot of these, a lot of these religions also have ministries and businesses that are attached, or that people are they're ex- they're acting as if it's a business as as well. Let's let's continue this discussion in a minute more with Brian J. Grimm. He's a a professor and um, and. Uh, President of the Religious Freedom and Business Foundation and Associate Scholar at Georgetown University, reporting on a study he did about uh, the impact the U.S. religions have on our economy and our society. $1.2 trillion of value annually they're bringing to the game, which is why a discussion of religious freedom is uh, is essential. And uh, this is just one component of it. But uh, religious freedom, they have, a, they have a voice, and they should when they're changing so many lives and bringing so much to the equation. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A lot has been in the news about uh, religious uh, religious freedom, including um, a letter that 17 different faith leaders from around the country sent to President Obama rejecting his the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights report on religious freedom. The commission itself said that uh, they were questioning the societal worth of religious freedom, calling it a hypocritical code for discrimination, kind of a backhanded way to discriminate and show intolerance and racism. Um, And these religious leaders are saying, what? Hold on, hold on, hold on. We have, uh, you know, a right to conscience, a right to have our beliefs. And um, as, as part of this discussion, we found a really interesting study that came from Dr. Brian Grimm. And uh, he's he's bringing up uh, he is the president of the Religious Freedom and Business Foundation and a leading expert on socioeconomic impact of restrictions on religious freedom and international uh, religious demography. We appreciate you, Dr. Grimm. Thank you so much for uh, updating us on this information. It's very important. Yeah, so glad to be with you, Matt. Um, talk about when we look at this. So so basically one point two trillion in value comes in from religions, and it could be everything from congregations that are providing programs to um, venues. They have to purchase land. They have to purchase, you know, heating, air conditioning. They've got to provide all the services of any other entity or business. Uh, They also are providing schools and daycare systems. But um, along with all of that, these these religions also provide health care systems, higher education systems, charities, and they're acting like businesses. And together that brings in one point two trillion in, in added value. And yet people are still questioning if religions should have special rights, special freedoms. 
Yeah, that's right. The, I mean, the questions come as um, as there's a narrative develops around religion that religion is uh, part of the problem than part of the solution. And polling are showing that people have less confidence in religious leaders to uh, address and solve social problems. Uh, so there's a, a significant, uh, you could say, uh, questioning of the value of faith to, uh, to uh, American society. And some of that is just uh, because of the uh, amount of news that we hear uh, that has a negative, uh, that reports on the negative things. Because as with anything, religion is a uh, human institution that has human problems and failings. And uh, But that's, that tends to be what makes the news rather than all the good that's done quietly, uh, uh, you know, across the nation on, you could say, every street, nearly every street corner. Uh, and in fact, by way of comparison, you could compare it to the number of Starbucks in the United States. Mm. So in, in the, uh, if you were going to look for a Starbucks uh, uh, to find a, a hot beverage, uh, you would have to walk past 26 churches until you'd find your first Starbucks. <laughs> and so that's just by way of comparison that uh, you know, congregations are are much more active, uh, and and they're not just providing one service, such as you know serving up uh, serving up drinks, but congregations provide 150. I'm sorry, 1.5 million different social pro- service pro- programs, uh, also uh, provided by millions of volunteers and really millions of paid employees, which uh, contribute to the economic mm. life. Of well, and we already and, see too that we don't. Overall, the population doesn't trust government any more now than they did religion, right? I mean, religion is still probably more trusted than government, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, in, it's, I don't know that I've seen a direct comparison of the two, but both have been suffering yeah. in terms of, uh, of that. And, and sort of what you've alluded to of the, the, the sort of legal challenges to religious freedom— uh, that becomes part of how people see religion. So they see religion as something that is trying to stand up against uh, other things that are sort of modern social values, such as uh, rights for uh, LGBT gay people. And and so then that becomes uh, sort of the, the brush with which religion is painted uh, as something, as you've you know, mentioned, it's, uh, you know, this one uh, federal commission that said it's a uh, code for discrimination. Uh, I don't think it is code for discrimination, but uh, when people uh, see the conflict of, uh, you could say, the conflict of values between um, uh, people of faith trying to maintain uh, sort of what they see as a worldview and then these new social values, then it becomes painted with the brush uh, that some see as discrimination. Mm. So, so that... You know, I think that is a real issue, and I think part of the response to it uh, has been uh, played out in the courts through different court battles, and then that adds a negative connotation to how faith is dealing with um, issues in society. Uh, and then all the, of the love and the concern and, and the many social ministries and uh, millions and millions of hours of people volunteering to love their neighbor uh, get get unreported and, and in some ways, go unnoticed mm. uh, in the twenty-four hour news cycle. Yeah, and then yeah, and, th- and then it just kind of gets overlooked, and we don't see how these religions are probably fi- filling in many of the gaps 
where government drops people. I mean, and, and a lot of the religions are on the front lines. Um, I guess one of my one of my concerns is too. There's a weird. Usually, I mean, I can imagine that many of these um, religions also receive, other than just tax advantages for being religions, they they might also be receiving funding or government subsidies in some of these uh, uh, these different social service things that they're doing. And so then it's like now the government could actually tell the religions how to do their job, uh, like a religious hospital now or a religious health care provider has to provide certain services that may be against their religious values. I mean, I guess once you're taking the money from the government, the government wants to have more of a say in how you do it. Yeah, well, I think the government, you know, in in a uh, society, an open and just society, the government doesn't have its own uh, set of, of values and, and priorities separate from the people of the country. In fact, those those things need to come together. So uh, the government should in many ways reflect the diversity of the country and, and not just take a narrow point of view on, on one topic or another. So just as, as it relates to religion, you know, you've mentioned that uh, a faith-based hospital uh, will receive, you know, Medicare or they'll receive other kinds of um, payments for services through government funds. Um, and therefore, we could, you know, one argument is we could just close all of those down and let mm. some non-faith-based uh, institution pick up the slack if they don't like what the government's uh, requiring of them. Uh, but there, there's a little bit of problem with that from the data. So there's a, a recent survey by the Pew Research Center that found that uh, people who are highly religious uh, are significantly more likely to have volunteered in the past week and they're significantly more likely to have donated money, time, goods, or uh, services to the poor in the past week. So what what we find is that there is a true religious effect. It doesn't mean that people who are not highly religious are not generous and also donate, but they do so to a significantly less uh, less uh, less level, as as demonstrated by the surveys. So what would happen if you would uh, just say, okay, we're going to close the faith-based institutions and let a secular pick it up? Uh, you would not see, one, the same level of commitment because these religious organizations, um, not exclusively but by and large, will have people who are committed to the mission of the organization and bring their religiosity and their values to the task. Uh, so then you would miss miss all of that commitment, and, and you might have um, – uh, you know, institutions that could pick up the slack, but perhaps with less of the heart and, and commitment to, mm. um, to, the, to, for instance, the poor that many of these institutions uh, um, epitomize. Mm. No, and it makes sense. I mean, it seems like back in the Bush days, more and more, uh, you know, fewer, it seems like, um, governments were were pushing religions to to take up some of the social needs and social service needs of the world, and we turn more of it over to um, to government entities. But there's just something about, like I think you're saying, the, the, when it's your purpose, when it's your mission, it's your passion to serve and, and love someone else, you it's just delivered differently than when it's your job, you know? I mean, the DMV <laughs> is different than yeah. a charity. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's that's very true. And but 
some of these same values translate to the business world. And, uh, you know, there's a, a, a number of examples, but one that's very interesting is Tyson Foods. They uh, produce chickens. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Tyson Food Company employs a force of chaplains to minister to the, you know, multi-faith, interfaith needs of all their employees. So uh, on staff, in addition to you know, a line manager and you know, and people working in the factories, they have chaplains. And that's a reflection of the values of the uh, of the owners of the company uh, that see faith as, as really part of hmm. uh, what motivates them to do a good job in business. And, you know, of course, you don't have to, you know, have uh, a religious faith in order to do good in business. But for a number of businesses, uh, that that motivation of faith uh, reflect is reflected in things like whether they hire uh, chaplains or the goods and services they produce. So even uh, you know keeping in the food industry, uh, the whole halal, the Muslim uh, food industry, and the kosher food industry. You know these industries exist um, only because of faith. Mm. They're there to serve the dietary needs uh, of uh, you know members. And in fact, uh, you know they they have quite a uh, a following outside the faith uh, themselves. So, like if you're in New York City and you want to get uh, some, you know, a, a hot dog on the street, you're gonna have to walk past several halal um, food carts till you can find a you know a regular old hot dog. And and they they've become quite popular mm-hmm. because people you know like the food that's tasty and uh, and and uh, it, at least there's a perception with the religious. Um, uh, procedures in, in certifying the meat that maybe it's a little bit healthier. So, you know, in different ways, um, you know, the, a faith-inspired business contributes different kinds of value, a different kind of um, uh, setting in this very diverse country that we live in that, that adds to, you know, I, I think the richness of the, the pluralism we see uh, that is the United States. Where do you see this going, Dr. Graham? Does this I mean, I, I guess your the hope is that they see the power of what this brings through monetary terms, um, and what the replacement cost would be, which, if I'm betting, would be double or triple to replace this type of a system. I mean, is that your hope that numbers might talk? Well, I think that numbers are very very useful because if you as they say, if you don't count something, it doesn't count. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, that's not really true. But um, but when you do count something, then then it is uh, you know when you put a number to something, it gives people an idea of the general value um, that then leads to more inquiry. So that's my hope is that this kind of study will lead to um, you know more uh, more and more inquiry into the value of faith. What do you think we can do just as the average Joe? I always like to know what I can do to help uh, make this argument so it doesn't seem so much like we are intolerant and, you know, being hypocrites, um, but also that we can that we can explain better the reason why religions need to continue with religious freedom and have some of the tax incentives and benefits that they receive from the government. Well, I, I think there's three things. One is to realize the, the, what I think is the greatest benefit of religious freedom is that it sets people of faith free to do good, to love their neighbor. Mm. 
Um, and so the the value of religion's freedom isn't it's not a shield that protects me from people who want to criticize me, but it's it's that freedom uh, to to take my faith or whatever someone's faith is and and put it to practice in in, in the most basic ways of loving your neighbor. Um, the second the second thing that I think is important is um, that in a discussion with people that have different values or might not see the value of faith is is to realize that we're making an argument that's uh, based on fairness for all. So if 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 you know if we should discriminate on somebody's identity, if somebody uh, is uh, gay or lesbian, um, you know they, they they need to be you know these are people who uh, we love just as much as somebody who's uh, has a different orientation, but in a similar way, if somebody's Catholic or Mormon or uh, atheist or Jewish, uh, we don't love one more than the other. Hmm. So these are all, from a faith perspective, all of these are people that God has created, and, and it's in the process of uh, helping along the path towards uh, sanctification, to use you know, sort of a religious term. So, so we want fairness for all, so that all people have that uh, sense of dignity. Uh, I think that, that that communicates that we're not in the business of judging, but in the business of ensuring that everybody uh, has a fair shot at uh, what their values are and expressing them in the public, public mm. sphere. And the last thing I'd say is that uh, you know, become educated on some of these topics uh, of religious freedom, but also this economic value of faith to American society. Um, and one resource, if I could mention, yeah. uh, uh, is uh, there's a website called Faith Counts. Uh, it's just faithcounts.com, and you can find this report with a, there's a short four-minute video uh, that summarizes the findings. It's very uh, snazzy with the you know, uh, graphics and, and animation uh, that uh, summarizes the study, but uh, you can also see the whole report, uh, the academic report, and a two-page uh, fact sheet. Uh, and I think this kind of this kind of basic information um, then gives uh, people um, something to talk about, and, and many people are surprised at just how much religion does contribute to the mm. country. And that's a good way to you know get into this conversation with those that um, you know might be objecting to the importance of religious freedom. Yeah, no, I love it, and I you can't beat education on this. Um, especially when the numbers are right there. They're right there. Well, Dr. Brian Grimm, we appreciate you. We want to have you back on the show again to continue this discussion. Such an important topic, I think, for all of us that uh, believe deeply in fairness to all and the free-to-do-good kind of movement. We appreciate your work there at Georgetown University. We will take a break, come back, wrap it up this, uh, this hour. Stick with us, folks, helping you see the good in the world it's out there, and it might be where you're not even looking for it. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So how do you weigh the value of religion? Um, y- well, you probably ought not weigh it. It's, uh, it's, it's bigger than any of us can can put a tag on it or a title or a label. We can give you a financial number. Uh, Religion is $1.2 trillion of economic value. But what is it socially? What is it emotionally? What is it uh, to the person that's dying of a disease or the family that's supporting the person that's dying of a disease? You can't quantify the value of a connection spiritually and a belief system. So 
Uh, we do, though, need to be tolerant. And if we do believe in God and believe in higher powers and higher principles, then we need to live that and show tolerance so that no one can question um, what we believe. Powerful stuff, folks. We're blessed. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. More ideas to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. None of us were given a handbook when we came to this earth, and so this show... This is where we try to give you the information you need to live, to live a smarter life, you know, to get the relationship skills, the life skills. Today uh, on the show, we will be talking about health, exercise. And did you know that if you exercise and then you take a break, you may be losing the benefits of um, what exercise does to your brain? A healthy exercising person gets a lot of blood flow to their brain. If you then go take a break, let's say a week off, you research shows now you may lose that blood flow to the brain. Now, as a person who has lost the blood flow to my brain for more than eight years, I miss it. I want it back. So we will be speaking with a researcher about why this matters, how this matters, and how it may impact Alzheimer's patients um, and uh, aging populations who may be experiencing issues with dementia as well. So interesting subject there. Plus, of course, we'll do the headlines. A lot of great stories. Today, we are also going to we're going to cut through all of this FBI stuff. Now, we couldn't get James Comey on. Director right. Comey. He's in a cone of silence, he's allegedly. A, he's in a Comey of silence. Oh, there you go. That's better. And he, but we have, we're going to talk to an FBI agent who is going to give us the lowdown, the straight news. He's going to be very direct. I'm going to take the questions right to him. Have we verified his credentials? Yes. Okay. He has a gun hmm. and he has a jacket that has three letters on it. All right. Well. And one of them is an F and one's an B and one's an I. So you just gave us all three. So does it say fib? Yeah. Okay. It's, he's a fibber. No, this guy is going to shoot straight. He's, See, I, I always he's, enjoy... an, he's an information officer, so they, they're right. trained in communicating. Or propaganda. Whichever. Oh, you are so... <laughs> you're such a cynic. They this... tell you what, you what they want you to know. It's propaganda. It's no, the th- no, but here's the deal. A lot of this has yes. to do with the interviewer. It does. And I can you cut through the noise? I will endear him to me, and then I'm going to kind of do. I'm going to I'm going to run around okay. and sneak in the back on the interview, and then boom, I'm going to get him to tell us what was going through Comey's head. He won't be able to resist your. No, he'll tell me exactly what I want to know. Sounds like a game plan. Mm-hmm. Wow, That's my, I've been thinking about it all day mm-hmm. and night last night, and and since since Comey made this announcement like five days ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to cut through this. All right. I look no, forward to hearing No this. other interviewer has been able to do it. Mm. But boom, the Matt Townsend Show. We'll get to that. Uh, plus, by the way, today we're celebrating the Day of the Dead, also known as Six Days Pre-Election. 
It's interesting. Interesting how that kind of is around each other. It's it is. It's uh, cultures are so different because um, our culture's not big into like celebrating in a scary way dead people. No. But, but the Day of the Dead isn't a scary thing. It's, it's turned kind of that way. I it, mean, the idea yeah. is you're in you're, Mexico. It's a, it's a little scary looking. Yeah, there's for a lot an of, outsider, but for somebody on the inside, it's yeah. just you're you're celebrating your family. Culture, you're right. remembering your family and the yeah. people that have passed. That's yeah. It's but like, but you, you watch a Day of the Dead celebration, you're like, whoa! There's skeletons mm-hmm. and all kinds of imagery that's kind of uh, scary, as you said. Yeah. It's it's and if you watch one of the latest James Bond movies, he blows one of them up. Oh, that was scary. Yeah, boy, that would really make you knock down a dead. building. Yeah, I did. That was really impressive. It's also Cookie Monster Day. Yeah, I I I don't know what it was. I always connected to him. This is the best version of this song. Totally. Of all the Muppets, though, I felt closer to the Cookie Monster. Uh, he, he was. Uh, I'm more sorry. Like me. He's not one of the Muppets. Pardon? He's not one of the Muppets. He's not a Muppet. Okay, sorry. But of I, all of the puppets on Sesame Street... Hey, characters. Oh, sorry. Of all of the characters... There we go. I thought they were all called Muppets. They all come from the same... Jim Henson. Jim Henson Productions, yeah. but there are certain Muppets and the rest are... Puppet. Characters. Oh, characters, sorry. Yeah. The Muppets aren't interested in helping you learn. They're just okay. there to do the show. They have a show to put on. Do you guys notice that you're talking with a character yes. singing about cookies that he might share it maybe? Behind you. No, no, no. He's not going to share the cookies. He wants you to share the cookies with him. Oh, okay. Right. And they've got people dancing. Ah, oh, It's just such a good spirit. So that's why we want to celebrate Cookie Monster Day. It's his birthday, for heaven's sakes, November 2nd. He's like 600 years old. Or... 50, 60 years old, whichever. I didn't know how old he was. He, by the way, he'll consume anything. Mm-hmm. Remember, he'll consume anything from apples and pie to letters, flatware, and hubcaps. But he enjoys the cookie. He Well, who doesn't? As right. long as a few cookies are sprinkled in there. I do, I do remember as a child watching him chew up a hubcap. I'm like, really? A little extreme there, cookie. Well, it was round like a cookie. He was hungry. So that's where my hubcaps go. <laughs> yeah. They're never on. You can never see all four on a car. Yeah. There's always one missing. Hey, by the way, your car is all... Why is it always clean? It is? Yeah, yours is too. I just washed it the other day. It's amazing. And then it rained. We have one of those uh, Quick Quack Pardon? monthly what? membership plans. Oh, really? Yeah. Quick Quack? At a car wash? Quick Quack. Yeah. Oh, wow. Is there a duck involved? It's the duck. Like, the he's inside the tunnel, and okay. it's actually his feathers that are, you know... Okay. Brushing up against the car, cleaning it. Enough said. It's a little odd. That's really weird. Duck droppings would complicate things, but that's Quick fine. Quack. Yeah. Um, cool. Now I know. I need one of those. Let's do this. Let's get to the headlines. I can hardly wait to get to this this FBI guy because I want this will make hold, national news. Hold him accountable. Yeah. Don't let him do the whole no. spin thing. No, I know. And, They'll try that. Yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. No, yeah. I'm going to mm, right? just go right to the jugular. Right. Do it. But first, to Sadie Nielsen with the headlines. Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country? 
campaigning for Hillary Clinton in Ohio on Tuesday, President Obama said the Democratic presidential nominee is consistently treated differently than just about any other candidate I see out there. Women are looked down upon because they do things that would be considered ambitious by men, the president said, and there's a reason why we haven't had a woman president before. He told the men in the crowd to ask yourself if you're having problems with this stuff, how much of it is that we're just not used to it. The 2017 open enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act kicked off Tuesday, just seven days before Election Day. Despite increasing prices and increasing decreasing choices on the marketplace, an estimated 11.4 million are expected to re-enroll in or sign up for Obamacare policies between November 1st and January 31st. Though Obama, the Obama administration hopes for closer to 13.8 million enrollees for the year. Obamacare has already become a big focus of the presidential election, with Hillary Clinton vowing improvements to the existing health care law and Donald Trump promising a swift repeal of it. Representative Trey Gowdy, the chair of the House Select Committee on Benghazi, said Tuesday he doesn't think the FBI should be talking about its investigation of Hillary Clinton's email server until the case is closed. I don't want an update of the status of the email investigation. I am not entitled to an update on the status of the email investigation. Gowdy, who once worked at the Justice Department, said during an interview on CNN's New Day. They should not be discussing the facts of an investigation until the investigation is over. But while Gowdy doesn't want updates, he said he does agree with the FBI Director James Comey's initial decision to inform Congress about the newly discovered emails. And finally... Yes. Um... This is kind of a sad slash funny story. Oh, boy. A toddler was filmed by road cameras going against traffic in his toy car on a busy Chinese road until he was grabbed by a police officer. Traffic camera footage from the busy road in Lushu showed the boy, reported only to be one year old, scooting his toy car against traffic during rush hour while vehicles swerve around him. Oh, that was tragic. I mean, he could have been... Squashed. He could have been. Big, but luckily, I mean, cars passing him, and he's just in his little toy car. And it's like funny but sad at the same time because yeah. he's just scooting along, uh-huh. and there's these giant cars going. No, by totally. Him. It reminds me of the day when I grew up, and nobody cared about kids playing in the street. That's true. At least the police officer grabbed him from the street. Uh, so grateful see? for that. Thank heavens for police officers, wherever they are. Thank you, Sadie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pretty um. Pretty cool that uh, how many little miracles like that, little blessings take place around the world. It never ends. It never ends. Hey, uh, you know, with six days before the election, a lot of us are getting tired of um, politics. But an interesting story popped up about five days ago um, with the FBI thing that's created a, the FBI and maybe reopening an investigation on Hillary Clinton or at least continuing looking at some other information that they found. And that's created a lot of hullabaloo. And you would think that it would just kind of end in the political world, but it, it hasn't just ended in the political world. Now, even the NFL is suffering from some of the overplay that's going on with um with Eli, with uh, Donald Trump, for example, Eli Manning says he wasn't using Donald Trump's name when he was audibling uh, during the New York Giants victory over the Los Angeles Rams in London on Sunday. The Giants quarterback was caught by microphones yelling out something that sounded a lot like Trump ahead of a snap. So Eli gets to the line, and when he gets to the line, if he sees the defense is set up in a different way, he'll change the play. It's called an audible. And his brother used to yell, Omaha, Omaha, and they would change the play. But somebody heard 
what they thought was Trump. Here's some audio. Now, that was Trump, 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 Trump. What what did he say, Terry? What, what, if it wasn't Trump, what was he saying? I, I don't know. It sounded like Trump to me. Thumpity, thumpity, thump, thump, Sometimes thump. you'll hear things and it sounded distorted because he's in the middle of the field yeah. and there's all the interference yeah. from the crowd. But that sounded distinctly like Trump. Yeah. He was saying it, it, he wasn't yelling Trump. It's But again, he can't tell you because he doesn't want to, you know, give all the tricks away. So... Eli Manning's in trouble, and now, you know, James Comey is in trouble, the director of the FBI, and it it really opened up a firestorm. And so I have noticed every news agency is trying to cut through this. Um, You can't get James Comey, the director of the FBI, on the phone. He's just not taking calls today. Uh, But we did happen to get uh, an an officer, an agent with the FBI, and we will be um, bringing him on. Jim Gophers is his name, and uh, Jim is the uh, Jim's the guy that he's the what is he? He's the like information officer from the Carbondale, Illinois FBI field office, and he joins us to shed uh, more light on this controversial Comey or uh, James Comey investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails. Let's see if we're able to get him. Jim, are you there? Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, I am. Officer Jim uh, Gophers, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the program. So uh, here's the deal. A lot of people, you know, are are upset because they think Director Comey created some problems. So, so here, I just want to ask you some questions. I'd love you to shoot straight with me, officer. Didn't Director Comey testify before the House Oversight and uh, Government Reform Committee that the FBI was finished with the investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails. Well, uh, Matt, you know, that uh, that statement has a semblance of non-falsity. Uh, but don't forget that he also said we'd certainly be likely to take a look at new and substantial information. Right. OK, right. So this, so so then what constitutes a substantial piece of information? Well, uh, what is substantial is that uh, we're looking further into this. Okay. Okay, so that that is what is substantial. Is your, right. Okay, right. okay. Uh, did, did Director Comey find some substantial, air quotes, information? Well, Matt, uh, we can neither confirm nor deny the discovery of information that uh, may or may not lead to further action in the Clinton email case. Okay. So you can't tell us? Well, uh, you know, we're going to continue to uh, ideate, and uh, we're hopeful that in the somewhat near foreseeable future we'll be able to get a bird's-eye view on the email deliverables. Okay. Um, So in the somewhat near foreseeable future, does that mean you'll be wrapped up by November 4th? Will that be by the election? Uh, well, you know, Matt, uh, it's really too early to tell at this juncture. Uh, we really can't see that far ahead at this point in time. Okay. You know, so in your opinion, will this investigation produce any conclusions different from what we found in the investigation in July? You know, again, uh, we can neither confirm nor deny the discovery of information that may or may not lead to further action in the Clinton email case. Okay. So um, if 
if anything is found, let's say, before the election, how, how would this impact, do you think, the election? Well, uh, you know, it's difficult for me to answer in the abstract. You know, that question is a little too vague, and uh, the FBI generally strives uh, to the best of its ability to only deal in, you know, uh, specificity. Okay. That's surprising, um, just because I, I haven't seen a whole lot of specifics coming out of this interview. Um, is there is there anything concrete that you can share with us, Officer, uh, or, or um, Information Officer Jim Gophers? Uh, yes, Matt. On uh, November 8th, the day we've been waiting for, uh, we'll be able to celebrate Cook Something Bold Day. Pardon? Uh, pardon? What? I don't understand. Cook, cook Something Bold Day. You know, it's a it's a day that, you know, we in my in my household, we look forward to it every year. OK, and that's what's concrete. That That's for sure what we will know on Election Day, that your family will be cooking something bold. Yes, that's correct. OK, that's good to know. Uh, any other any other big event that you think might be coming out or happening, you know, uh, on November 8th? Other than the cooking of, you know, something big and bold. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. Uh, my wife and I, we're going to head over to the local high school gymnasium, and uh, we're going we're gonna to watch our son's basketball game. Okay. So you're not going to talk about the election? Well, you know, we're going to take this one election at a time, you know, give it 110%. Uh, we know there are a lot of people who, who gave up on us, but uh, when the chips are down, we're going to show them what we're made of. You know, it may come down to the wire, but uh, in the end, we know we're going to come out on top of the win. Uh, our guys have been studying some of the tapes, and, uh, you know, we're confident we can capitalize on our opponent's vulnerabilities. We just got to keep driving them, driving them hard, and make sure not to let up. So as long as we maximize our potential and, and take every opportunity that we can to win and play our game to the best of our ability, you know, we're going to come out on top of this thing. <sighs> Great talk. Appreci- Great talk. Coach Jim Gophers. From the uh, Carbondale, Illinois FBI field office, apparently now coaching their team. Yeah, that turned into a sports interview at the end. What was that? Sound like every coach in the NFL after the game. Like, Sound like a NASCAR driver. Yeah. Jeez. So I guess in the end, we didn't really get much out of that. No. Well, he is apparently got a great cook something bold day coming up. Yeah, that's that was disappointing. Who produced that? I I want the head of that producer. They told me that we would have a scoop here. That guy. Nobody's cracking the FBI, folks. But uh, if you're looking for a good meal, apparently on the eighth, the Gophers will be cold, you know cooking something bold and beautiful. Anyway, we'll take a break. Come back. When we come back, we will be talking about exercise and your brain. Interesting research coming out. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, You know, before you skip another workout, you might want to think about your brain. A provocative new study finds that some of the benefits of exercise for your brain health may evaporate if we take to the couch and stop being active. 
even for just a week or so. And that makes a big deal with more and more of our population aging and more and more issues of dementia, cases of Alzheimer's impacting our society. So we wanted to bring in uh, one of the authors of the study, Dr. Carson Smith at the University of Maryland School of Public Health, who is researching how exercise may help and uh, prevent uh, Alzheimer's and uh, pick his brain, no pun intended, um, about exercise and brain health. Dr. Carson Smith, thank you so much for being with us today. about my research. It's, it's an honor to have you. Uh, to, I guess talk to us first of all, and then we can get more into you know, Alzheimer's focus. Talk to us about the, your, your study that you did about taking a break from exercise. First of all, what does exercising actually do for the brain? What are the benefits of exercise? What, what, is it, what are the benefits it has on our brain? Well, the benefits of exercise on the brain are um, actually far-reaching and um, exercise has been shown, first of all, to produce neurotrophic effects, so um, the growth of new neurons and also um, angiogenic effects, so the growth of new blood vessels in the brain and new capillaries that help supply um, oxygen and nutrients to brain tissue, um, but also it, it reduces inflammation in the brain. Um, it, it probably also helps to you know, increase the branching of dendrites. Uh, so it, it essentially helps to uh, maintain neural connections and neural networks. Isn't that interesting? So physical exercise um, is going to give us more neurons, better vascular health in the brain, more blood flow. It's 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 just pumping up the brain. Yeah, that's right. It's and this has mostly um, been shown through animal research, which is you know allows you to be a little more invasive with the procedures, but. There's now evidence in humans also that you know, these effects, and in particular in one region of the brain called the hippocampus, um, that um, shows very strong neurogenic effects um, and stimulation of new neurons through physical activity. And what does the, what's the hippocampus, what is its function? Well, the hippocampus is a structure, you have um, two of them actually on each side of your brain, and it's critical to all learning and memory. So anytime you're taking in new information, um, and you're rehearsing it to remember it, um, the hippocampus is involved in that um, rehearsal, but then also it has projections up into the cortex of the brain that allow the storage of that memory then for long-term retrieval. Hmm. And and with more and more of our population aging, uh, issues of memory, dementia, Alzheimer's, um, I mean, th- this is great timing for this research. Yes. So, yes, Alzheimer's disease in particular attacks the hippocampus, and it's one of the first brain regions that um, begins to um, show neuronal death um, with the Alzheimer's disease pathology. Is So, so exercising improves these, uh, this area uh, and, and improves blood flow and the creation of neurons and, we're, and influences the hippocampus. Talk to us about your study, um, about how you went about studying what happens when you don't exercise. Sure. So, so these were um, an exceptional group of people, master athletes, who um, have a very you know, strong training history. And um, these individuals are not your typical older adults. So that's one thing to keep in mind as we talk about this. Um, they have about a 29-year history of endurance training. And you know they're running about 60 kilometers per week and um, competing in you know national and regional endurance events, but um, nevertheless, so they're very very fit individuals, and um, 
And we know that exercise, and you probably have experienced this yourself, Matt, when you don't exercise for 10 days, um, if you've been training, um, you notice a very fast decline in your ability to keep on running after mm. you don't exercise for yeah. 10 days. So we were looking really at that idea that, well, if this happens in our cardiovascular system, um, could it be happening in the brain also when you detrain? And so we had these master athletes um, stop training for 10 days in a row, and um, we had to call them to make sure that uh, they weren't training every day um, because it's <laughs> difficult for them to stop their exercise. Yeah, they were addicted to training. <laughs> right. So it, it was a, it was a stretch for them, but they were compliant and um, they were happy to help us. So they stopped training for 10 days. And what we did is we measured um, just sitting or actually laying in an MRI scanner at rest, um, looking at their brain blood flow. Um, they weren't doing anything in particular, just resting in, with their eyes open. And what we found is that um, brain blood flow decreased over that 10-day period in several brain regions, um, in particular, um, the hippocampus was huh. one of the regions where we saw a decrease in brain blood flow on both sides of the brain. Wow. So, I mean, and again, uh, and then did you retest them? Um, did you, when they got back on their regimen, did you retest them and find out, does it return? Unfortunately, we were not able to do that. Uh, we had we were working off a small budget here mm. to do this study, and so we um, we weren't able to get them back into the lab. Um, it's probably the case, though, that um, they did have a rebound in their brain, brain blood flow. Um, and I'd also like to point out that 10 days of not exercising um, didn't um, push their brain blood flow down to zero. So right. obviously, you know, um, there's probably a, a floor that would be reached, you know, um, for brain blood flow and and these people also, you know, there were no cognitive um, deficits that were observed. You know, they obviously maintained their brain health quite well and ability to function, um, as most of us can attest to as well. Um, but, but, it's, you, but you could imagine that if somebody hadn't exercised for a year, that not only would the blood flow go down, I mean, the cognitive abilities would be impacted as well. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah, so we... The the scientific evidence for that idea is is lacking, but um, you can over long terms of time, and when you look at large epidemiological studies, where you look at people's self-report of their physical activity, and you look at um, who then is at risk for a diagnosis of memory loss later in life, um, exercise does. Um, have a protective effect. So people who are more physically active or more physically fit are less likely to show a decline over time. Whether that takes one year or several years mm -hmm. um, is, is an open question. Um, and also there are probably um, genetic predispositions and other diseases that if you have them also would put you at increased risk. And if you combine that with low physical activity would just you know kind of exacerbate that risk. Yeah, in fact, um, I, I look at it like uh, if you're if you are seventy years old and you injure your knee, I mean, it could be the beginning. I mean, it might if there someday you can find the correlation between the lack of the blood flow, lack of exercise, and uh, increased um, or decreased uh, neurological abilities. That's um, it seems pretty. It's, it seems like a, a pretty natural thing. The older we get, the less we might be able to exercise. Plus, anything else that would decrease our blood flow to our brain or our hippocampus could also be causing some of our uh, you know, inability to remember. I mean, it's a, I guess 
this is this is your job as a scientist, and this is some pretty cutting edge research. Is is the future of this going to eventually give us more insight into Alzheimer's and other other issues? Well, that's my goal. My uh, my research line is dedicated to understanding how exercise, in particular, might uh, might um, be a protective for people who are at increased risk for the disease. Um, and so we're we're interested in studying people who have genetic susceptibility to the disease and whether or not exercise um, may be protective for them and actually um, improve their um, cognitive function over time, but also um, delay any progression of the disease um, as they um, age and um, and perhaps even you know have other factors going on like they might have high blood pressure or um, diabetes that also puts you at risk for Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Um, so exercise is interesting because it's pleiotropic and it affects all of the systems of the body simultaneously, and and it helps with all of these peripheral disease pathways like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, um, in, neuroinflammation, um, you know, stroke risk. That all of those factors um, put you at risk for Alzheimer's disease, and exercise also helps to alleviate those disease states. So exercise works across many different pathways in the body to protect us. Mm. And it really, it, again, this is this is our future. This is this is a big deal. We'll take a break. We'll continue the discussion with Dr. Carson Smith in just a minute. We're talking the brain benefits of exercise. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Exercising your way back to brain health, is it possible? Well, according to our guest, Dr. J. Carson Smith, he is a University of Maryland School of Public Health researcher, and he's talking to us today about how exercise may help prevent Alzheimer's. It at least, uh, we what we're recognizing is it does produce certain effects on your brain, um, Neurologically, it, it stimulates it more. It creates uh, more blood flow as well and, um, and helps uh, potentially with uh, the part of your brain that is more responsible for memory and, and retaining memories, your hippocampus. So we appreciate you, Dr. Carson Smith, for being with us again. Thank you so much. Um, talk to me about this physical activity in your study does it does it matter if you when you start exercising and the impact it has on your brain like if if you didn't exercise in your youth but you start doing it when you're 30 or 40 later in life maybe 50 does does that still have the same effect absolutely um although it's not really clear um if you exercise for a lifetime if you have a greater benefit um but what has been shown is that um, no matter when you start, if you start um, when you're younger and you um, continue until your old age, or even if you begin exercise um, when you are an older adult, say around age 60, um, there are still benefits and protection against memory loss um, for people who even start exercise um, in their older years. Um, it also seems clear, though, that if, if you're physically fit and active when you're young and then you do nothing into your old age, um, that that may not necessarily protect you, that there's really a need to continue to be physically active through your life. And 
Um, but the, at the same time, if you haven't been, you can pick it up and you can still benefit from it. Is there a, a minimum amount that you need to exercise? Well, there are guidelines that have been published, of course, um, through the American Heart Association and the American College of Sports Medicine that indicate that you know each of us, all of us, um, should be engaging in 150 minutes or you know 20 to 30 minutes um, per day, five days per week, or you know at least most days of the week we should be doing something that's of moderate intensity, whether that's walking or gardening or doing um, some household chores that are moderate intensity, like walking upstairs with your laundry. Um, or doing traditional exercise like walking on a treadmill or you know in a gym, um, so you know at a minimum we should all be doing um, 30 minutes most days of the week. Mm. And and really, it's it's whether it can be directly tied to Alzheimer's yet or not, it it's still going to impact you cardiovascularly. So it'll improve your heart health if you have heart issues. It will probably help um, even if, if, with diabetes, with your weight management. It's going to help you in so many other ways, which also contribute possibly to Alzheimer's. Absolutely, and you know, many times, uh, you know, our our brain and what goes on in our brain is we don't really understand what's going on. You might experience, you know, high blood pressure or you know, some other symptom of uh, of pain in your body or, you know, you, your doctor may be able to detect that you have some kind of heart problem. Um, but when it comes to our brains, we're, it's very difficult to detect on an early stage, you know, what type of risk we're undertaking. And by the time uh, memory loss actually occurs, the damage to the brain has largely been done already. And so um, it may be difficult, you know, at that point to try to do something about it. Uh, and so prevention, you know, and really um, understanding that over time, these benefits are going to accumulate um, over years and protect you. Because we, we know, it's funny, because you know when you don't exercise, like I just went on a vacation, and when I don't exercise, you know that the minute you have to get out and exercise again, your body pays for it and you feel that lag. But we don't ever think about the impact it must be having on our brain. But if you so, if people are out there and they're noticing they're sluggish and they're 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 just not as quick on their thoughts and it's harder to remember things. Don't just assume you're getting older and it's happening. It simply might be we need more blood flow. Sure. Yeah. It, of course, uh, we do age, and all of us are going to decline. And of course, you know, we all die in the end. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but certainly, and certainly, there is a natural process where, as we get older, we lose our our speed of processing. You know, we're not as fast. Our reaction time slows down. You know, we we don't remember as well. And there are normal declines, and so we don't necessarily. Um, have to think that well, all of us are going to get Alzheimer's disease uh, if you know if we don't do anything. Um, but there is a way that we can also maintain that function and maintain our independence, really. And that's I think what it really comes down to for most people is that's the greatest fear people have is losing their independence. Hmm. And physical activity and exercise help maintain your cognitive abilities and your physical abilities so that uh, you can maintain independence and um, and have a better quality of life. Is is there a correlation? We, we're talking about physical exercise here, but there's also a lot of companies, a lot of apps out there that are touting the benefits of, of kind of mental exercise, games and puzzles and activities that are supposed to strengthen your mental acuity. Are these real as far as be being able to actually strengthen your memory and your brain functioning? They have um, shown limited effectiveness. Um, and the the bottom line on these, uh, the mental games and et cetera, are that 
um, if you're trying to practice um, with these games on your ability to remember short-term memory types of tasks, then you're going to be really good at, at those types of tasks. Um, so it's very specific. The training is very specific to the type of hmm. uh, cognitive function you're trying to improve. Um, but these um, games have not been shown to to translate into other domains of cognitive function. And so they do have specific benefits, um, but not um, generalizable benefits to cognition. Um, I can tell you a little bit about a project that yeah. we did where we compared these, if you'd like. Yeah, please. Um, so we, we did compare um, whether the degree to which people engaged in cognitively stimulating activities versus physical activity. And we looked at their hippocampi over an 18-month period of time and um, we found that, and, and their cognitive function, and we found that um, those who engaged in physical activity um, were more likely to have a preservation of cognitive function, and especially in those people who have this genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. Um, whereas we found that um, performance of cognitively stimulating activities had no effect at all over 18 months on whether their cognition was preserved. Interesting. Um, so, so if you're going to bet your time somewhere, bet it physically. Go exercise. That's right. That's where I would put my money. That's it. And especially if you have a history, which is important, a family history. My my uh, in-laws have a family history of Alzheimer's, and we just lost my mother-in-law from it, who was the most physically fit human being you've ever seen. And yet, you know, there's still, I guess, there's still the... Um, there's still the actual genetics of this that it might not be able to reverse, but it doesn't mean for the rest of us it's not worth doing. Absolutely. So you bring up a good point. Then, you know, exercise is not a cure all for everything, yeah. and and certainly people who are very physically fit will get the disease. Unfortunately, um, what we don't know is whether or not um, your mother-in-law, for example, um, was. Uh, able to prolong her life and actually right. not get the disease sooner um, because of her physical fitness. So we may not be able to prevent it, um, but we may be able to delay its onset. Mm, that's That really is hopeful because I always thought, oh, man, she's in such great shape. Now she's just going to live longer with it. But you you may be right. She may have prevented having even early onset of the same disease. Yeah, and there are, there are other benefits as well. Um, so the quality of life that a person has is important. And even though they may be in this sad situation of losing their identity and not knowing who their family members are through Alzheimer's disease, um, their physical function, um, their, uh, their levels of depression, their mood, um, you know, their, um, their, their agitation and frustration uh, that they experience through the disease process, you know, exercise may actually be helpful in, to, in managing those types of symptoms as well. Sometimes I wonder if we... We have because it's so commercialized. It's so um, we we've set up exercise to be something that you've got to be you know rock hard, solid, abs of steel. Um, that many might be thinking, "Ugh, I don't think I can ever get that." But you're not saying you need to be crazy about it. You're saying just get the minimum requirements and get get your body moving, get your blood flowing to your brain. That's right, Matt. I think. What people need to realize is that exercise and physical activity isn't necessarily something that has to be difficult or painful. It has to be um, moderately strenuous, and that doesn't have to be difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And mostly people need to think of it as something that they have to work into their daily routine, just like you would make time to take a shower and make a meal. 
um, you know, if you skip those things, you realize after a while that you're not really feeling quite well and people don't want to be around you, for example, um, if you're not bathing yourself. So if you're physically active and if you build that into your schedule, like this is just part of my what I do every day to take care of myself, then then it becomes easier. Is and to the family side of this, it's it seems like it's a it's a powerful lesson to hand down to your family that we stay active. We are active people, and a habit of activity will always be part of our of our family because then we're also handing down a habit of of healthier mental abilities. Absolutely, I I completely advocate uh, getting the family together. You know, getting outside, uh, biking, walking you know, hiking together, uh, you know, playing basketball as a family, you know, whatever your family enjoys doing, um, certainly, you know, get outside um, and, you know, get moving. Mm. What would you say as we wrap this up, Dr. Smith, um, for the person that right now heard your lesson, knows now that they can't just sit out and they can't can't expect their exercises from yesterday to just pay off today necessarily. They've got to stay at it. What what should we do if we're going to get started in a new exercise regime today? Well, first, if you're older, um, you know, over the age of, of 50 or so, then you just need to make sure that your physician knows what you're about to start and that you're um, that it's safe for you to engage in activity. Um, most of, most people are going to be safe to be able to walk, and so I would say, you know, if if you can find a place to walk and somebody to walk with, that's a good place to start. You want to just um, start slow. You know, you don't. You just need to walk for maybe it's only 10 minutes. Um, you can accumulate different bouts of exercise throughout the day. So maybe it's 10 minutes in the morning. Maybe it's another 10 minutes in the afternoon. Maybe it's 10 minutes after dinner. Um, so you want to just start accumulating this activity and build slowly. And you know, bring a partner with you. Um, bring a friend. Bring a spouse with you um, or a family member. You know, get encouragement because we need that. No, totally. Dr. J. Carson Smith, thank you so much for your great research and the insight into exercise and the impacts it has on our brain. Really, uh, you only get one brain, folks. <laughs> Let's uh, take care of it as long as we can. Let's keep the blood flow into it. Dr. Carson Smith, again, is from the University of Maryland School of Public Health and uh, is currently researching how to prevent Alzheimer's. We will take a break. Come back. When we come back, we will have a little uh, lesson from Leanna Tan about Christmas music after Halloween. Sounds like a major problem. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You know, we finished Halloween, and as we've talked about it, it was a great success. We've entered the time of year now where the holidays kind of line up. We have one after another. Have you heard any Christmas music on the radio yet? It seems like as soon as Halloween is over, people just want to jump right into Christmas. But come on, you can't skip you can't skip but November and Thanksgiving. You might have changed the station and heard the holiday music on the radio today, but your our producer Leanna Tan is an advocate uh, for Christmas music, but uh you got to be careful. It shouldn't take place before Thanksgiving. I have been waiting for this day to come all year long. Now that Halloween is over, you know what it's time for. Christmas music. Actually, I've been listening to it since September. But now it's relatively socially acceptable. It's the most wonderful time of the year. You know, there are two types of people in this world. Those who break into song when you play Christmas music before Thanksgiving... 
and those who throw death glares and inaudible curses. A Christmas display in Costco before Thanksgiving! I am the former. I just don't get how people can hate such a jolly time of the year. So, I'm determined to convince the world and be an advocate for premature Christmas music. And in order to defend my case, I've come up with five reasons you should listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. It makes you happy. Not only can it bring back memories of snow angels and stuffed stockings, but it can also literally make you happier and healthier. A BBC News article says that Christmas caroling is good for your health because it's an aerobic activity that improves heart health with related benefits to overall health and is linked to longevity, stress reduction, and general health maintenance. that caroling releases what's called the pleasure hormone and that when we sing we also see a measurable decrease in stress hormones like cortisol also it's impossible to sing well with a long face because it affects your pitch which means caroling makes you happier you know all the lyrics you don't have to worry about doing that awkward thing where you ramble off non-existent words until the chorus comes around when you're belting in the shower or on your car ride home. Because you've heard these songs over and over and over again since you were a kid, so the lyrics are engraved in your memory. Doesn't it feel good to sing along to an entire song start to finish without having to Google the lyrics? Hang your stockings and say your prayers You don't have to worry about flipping through all the radio stations or shuffling through a bunch of playlists to find the most fitting song. We're playing all eight of your favorite Christmas songs all month long. Here's Mariah Carey again. There is such a wide variety in Christmas songs. It's perfect for any occasion. You've got the upbeat pop versions for your morning workout, the jazzy Christmas ones for when you're making dinner, and the quiet lullabies for when you're going to sleep. Santa Claus is coming to town from 94 at your Christmas station, and what better way to unwind at the end of a long day than to play Mariah Carey again! Woo-hoo! There's really no excuse. It reminds people of their values. Now, let's all remember what Christmas is really celebrating. Christmas is a Christian holiday that celebrates Christ's birth. So when people listen to this music, Christian or not, it helps them remember their religion and what they value in life. And much of the message of Christmas is to have peace on earth and goodwill towards men. I bet you'd agree that we need that message blasting through our radios for more than just one month out of the year. Many moonless nights, cold and weary, with a baby inside. Of course, the best part of listening to Christmas music before Christmas is that you get to enjoy Christmas for a longer period of time. Why would you limit yourself to just two weeks of holiday spirit? The holidays whiz by so quickly, if you wait till the first weeks of December to start listening, you realize you've wasted so much holiday joy and don't have enough time to fully enjoy the season. What a pity. So really, I'm just trying to help you get the most out of your holiday season. If you're looking for a way to improve your life, just remember, I'm 
pretty sure the happiest people on earth always say it's never too early for Christmas music. What I'm trying to say is, it's time to take down the creepy skeletons and fake cobwebs. I'd say any holiday that celebrates arachnids should be taken down as soon as possible and replaced with sleigh bells and carolers. Haul out the holly, everyone, and don't be afraid to tune your radio to the Christmas station before Thanksgiving this year. Just give it a try. Well, I'm Liana Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number three of the program. If you've missed the preceding two hours, you will want to look those up on iTunes, on Stitcher. Go to BYURadio.org. They're everywhere. Get uh, more information and... Uh, you interrogated an FBI yeah, representative? That, you know, I couldn't crack him. He's tough. They he, train them well. Jeez. But I did get invited to a barbecue at his house. That's right. They have bold recipes. Bold. Bold recipes day. Hey, um, so much to talk about today, and it won't even be at all about the election. Really? No, nope, not even going there. All right. I'm not going there. Not going to do it. We will be talking about how you can learn to thrive in life. How you can get back that joie de vivre. Hmm. Hmm? Would it involve swimming in 600 pounds of Nutella? Well, that's a beginning. My guy did it. It's on YouTube. Okay, we got to talk about that. It's pretty gross. The Nutella dive. You don't want to miss that. We'll get to that as all, as well. We will be celebrating uh, Cookie Monster Day. Mm. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. Mm. C is for cookie. And this is where I learned how to spell cookie. But you can't name any other word that starts with C. No. Yeah, I can't. I could, co- cookie Monster. That's the name of a monster that eats cookies. Uh, it's Cookie Monster Day. It's also Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead is the Mexican uh, Day of the Dead celebration is, is today, the 2nd of November. It's a day where they go honor those that have died and passed on. It's, it's part of a three-day uh, celebration. One day is All Saints Day that we talked about yesterday uh, All Souls Day and Halloween, Hallow's Eve. Those are the three, the trifecta. And then the next one is Bring Out Your Dead Day. Bring Out Your Dead, bonk. Um, we'll, we'll get to we'll get to so many stories. We've got to talk to you today about a driver um, that wasn't so great. Um, a lady trying to holster her gun in a Walmart parking lot. It misfires. Oops. Yeah, not good. So uh, all of that, but first, let's get to the national headlines from our own uh, uh, from our own Sadie Nielsen and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? Early Wednesday, the Des Moines Police Department said that two officers, one from Des Moines and the other from Urbandale Police Department, were shot dead in the early morning hours in what police describe as an ambush-style attack. 
The Irwindale officer was found shot in his patrol car at about 1.06 a.m. And the, about 20 minutes later, the Des Moines police officer were dispatched to aid. And the second officer was found shot in his car about two miles away. Both officers have died. And the suspect, Scott Michael Green, is in custody. Hillary Clinton's campaign has run into trouble in the tight battleground state of Florida, where essential African-American voters are not turning out for early voting and the kinds of numbers they would meet that would meet expectations. Normally, African-Americans lead in-person voting, but as of Sunday, black voters make up just 16 percent of those ballots, as opposed to 25 percent in the first two days of in-person early voting in 2012. As of Monday, Republican voters have cast 40.5 percent of the absentee or in-person early ballots and Democrats 40.2 percent. Democratic Party head Debbie Wasserman Schultz stepped down just before the convention in July. But emails released by WikiLeaks Tuesday reveal the Clinton campaign was plotting how to get rid of her months earlier, the AP reports. The campaign thought about forcing Wasserman Schultz at, out at the convention or taking away her powers and leaving her as a figurehead or co-chair. It turns out they didn't have to do either as Wasserman Schultz resigned on her own after other leaked emails showed the party party secretly backing Clinton over Sanders when it's supposed to remain neutral. And finally, yes, in your virtual reality news, Megan Kelly posted a video to YouTube showing her mother trying out the Rylix coaster, virtual roller coaster for Samsung Gear VR in the waiting room waiting room of a hospital in Maywood, Illinois, as they waited for her father to come out of surgery. The video shows Kelly's mother initially enjoying the experience. Holy cow, this is awesome, she says. The ride seems to take a turn, however, as the mother starts to flail her limbs and contort her chair as if she was on an actual roller coaster. Kelly and the woman's other family members can be heard laughing loudly at the woman's reaction to the VR video. I'm going to throw up, the mother says at the end of the ride. It's all fun and games, still. Until someone actually you made throws your up. Mom sick. Yeah. Holy it cow. was supposed to originally calm her down and calm her nerves, and she obviously did like it at the beginning, but towards the end, it was not so great. Whoa. She's stuck. Um, they're just laughing. Um, here's the deal, though, is if you're going to try to calm someone down while their husband is in surgery, I'm not sure an amusement ride is the way to do that. I agree. If they're if Even you're if gonna it's do, virtual reality. If you're going to do virtual reality, it's got to be on a beach. Yeah. With your like toes a hammock in the sand. just swinging in the ocean. Yes. Waves just... Ah. Uh. Yeah, I agree. That's how you do it. I'll go ahead and uh, post that on Twitter because it's definitely something everyone needs to see. At Dr. Matt Show. Thank you, Sadie. We also, I think another way that they could have had mom relax would be with a pool full of Nutella. Don't you think, Terry? Just just throw mom in the pool. Would you do that? For You've heard of like mud baths. Oh, yeah. People go in there because it has... Of Nutella, for sure. Either cleansing or it softens your skin or whatever the... Yeah. uh, suspect reason you would I'd take do in it for. some strawberries I'd probably take in some bananas just eat but there's a, a YouTuber the named Krim Kander Krim Kander who filed it uh, filled his entire tub with 600 pounds of Nutella before immersing himself in the chocolate hazelnut bath uh, now the bath that sounds totally different to me yeah so the video's out there and he's just frolicking in this mess of chocolate syrupy spread wonderness that they somehow heated up so that it's not just the, uh, uh, the block that you normally get. But yeah, swimming around in 600 pounds of uh, chocolate spread. 
These YouTubers are making big money if they can buy 600 pounds of Nutella. The problem is you have to get so many people to watch your video before yeah. you hit the point where there's any money to, so to they, be transacted. Then yeah. you have to get so much further beyond that to make any to make it worthwhile. Did so. this guy get to meet the president just like the woman who had all that cereal in the bathtub got to meet the president? No, I don't believe so. <sighs> it's just not fair. This guy will probably meet the next president. But you brought up a really good point, Jeff. Maybe this is a good no- uh, good moisturizer, you know? Yeah. You know, but it, it might also give you a lot of acne. Yeah, but you know what? Worth it. Totally. If you're going to go down with you know, a bad case of acne, what better way to go than in the bathtub? But you would never do this. Oh, yeah. Well, you're not a bather. I thought you don't like baths. Well, that's not really a bath. Hmm. That's just more of a coating, a chocolate coating with a hard candy shell on the outside. I'd do it. I'd do it in a minute. Um, <laughs> it is a mess. It's a mess. It's a waste of a lot of good Nutella. He could have – He, come on. Oh, it's sad. <laughs> he could have fed some third world countries with that Nutella. Think of how many other countries. Or how many strawberries he could have dipped. Oh, yeah. Right? There's holidays now that will be completely unfulfilled because he wasted all that. How many people in other countries won't ever get a bath of Nutella? And imagine all the moms who went to the store trying to get some Nutella and had to leave empty-handed. Yes. Sorry, ma'am. We're just amazingly – it's weird. It's strange. We're out. And is any part of that sanitary? No. But then what do you do, yeah. with, what do, you do with all of it once you've been swimming in it? Well, you go – Fondue party? Invite the friends over. Bring in the cheese. <laughs> Frat house. <laughs> that is so disgusting. Yeah, you have to get a bucket and then you clean and you clean and you're there forever. Not worth and it. And you end up throwing a bunch of towels away. <laughs> Not worth it. Not worth it. Hey, uh, crazy story um, out of the Bronx. Uh, New York PD are looking for a man who stole a patrol car that was parked directly in front of a Bronx precinct with the keys left in the ignition. I mean, they're thinking who would steal a cop car. The unidentified man hopped into the squad car, parked outside the 50th precinct, in, um, and drove it about two miles at 6.20 a.m. Cops said that the, the man then crashed into four unoccupied parked cars. It seemed like it was a joyride, police sources say. Witnesses told cops that the suspect fled the scene in a black Lincoln Town Car cab. So he stole a cop car, then he got in a Lincoln Town Car cab. So an upgrade. Totally. He went from probably a Dodge Charger yeah, to a Lincoln Town Car. Right. That's not bad. Not a bad upgrade. Now, we, I think, have video. The guy's obviously got bad eyes. Mm. And we actually have video proof. We think we know who it was. Really? Cops involved? Yeah. Do you recognize the voice? Is it Thurston Howell III? No. Oh. <laughs> no, it's not. I just thought it was Gilligan's Island. Like, no. Why do they have cars? Who would take a car and then crash it? Yeah. Not even know he crashed it. Right. Any, Jeff, do you have any guesses? 
Is it uh, Mr. Magoo? Yes. <sighs> Mr. Magoo. Do you remember Mr. Magoo? Those Played the by the actor that did Thurston Howell Third. Yep. You were close. <laughs> <laughs> right voice. Yeah. Wrong character. Wrong Muppet. Yeah. Right. As we learned in hour two. Uh, a woman accidentally shoots herself while holstering her gun in the Walmart parking lot. This is in Michigan. 23-year-old woman accidentally shot herself in the hip. Uh, that's a bad place to shoot yourself. There's a lot of large vessels in your hip. Yes, there is. And uh, Nerve endings, all kinds uh-huh, of stuff. Not a good place. Sheriff's deputies respond to the parking lot about 325 on October 21st. Police learned the 23-year-old was attempting to holster her handgun when the gun fired and a bullet stuck in her hip. An off-duty nurse was in the parking lot and gave first aid to the woman. The injured woman was taken to the hospital for treatment of injuries not considered life-threatening. County Sheriff's Office uh, said the woman planned to, uh, uh, to open carry the weapon and was putting the gun in the holster when it discharged. That really hurt. I'm going to have a lump there, you idiot. She was yelling at herself. She was mad. Uh, as, as you know, on the show, we always suggest you, you're, you be very careful when you're going to open carry and when you're holstering your weapon. In fact, what do we say, Jeff, about holstering a weapon? That uh, a wise man holsters his weapon wisely. Wisely. Exactly. Always two hands when you holster your weapon. The first you don't succeed... Shoot yourself in the hip. <laughs> By the way, she's obviously no. a great shot. One in, she didn't accurate. Yeah. She could have really hurt herself. One in the holster, two in the hips. Yeah. Uh huh. And one if by land, and two if by sea. So yeah, most of the time, this kind of thing happens at the gun show. <laughs> right. People are pulling out their gun. They just bought a new gun. They're getting in their car, whatever, and they shoot themselves in the parking lot. So why do people make such a big deal about? You know, people having guns. Yeah. It's not like they don't know what they're doing. As they shoot themselves. In the hip. Read a story yesterday. Yes. Guy's out hunting with his two and three-year-old little boys. What happened? He wounded his two and three-year-old little boys. <gasps> he did? Yeah. With a gun? Yeah. Ah, oh, boy. Could have been much worse. What happened to the kids? They, they just, I think it hit him in the foot or something. Man. Yeah. I didn't hear about that. Yeah. You, I mean, but the thing is, there's thousands of people obviously I mean, that, that own guns. There's very few, yeah, and we only like hear that. about the accidents. Yeah, but at the same time, the accidents seem completely avoidable. <laughs> totally, totally avoidable. Did you hear about the oldest woman in the world? 116 years old. Really? She reveals that she eats one food every day. What's that? What would you eat, Nutella? Nutella. She's now bathing in Nutella. There was a woman that drank Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Do you remember her? Yeah. This is Emma Morano, 116 years old, of Verbania, Italy. Um, or if Don was here, Verbania. Yeah, I'd come in and correct you. Italia. Was born in 1899. Wow. She will turn 117 years old on November 29th. And um, guess what she eats every day? Two eggs mm-hmm. a day. That's it. Two eggs a day. Two eggs a day. Keeps the doctor away. And she eats cookies. Oh, so cookies. Two eggs and cookies. By the way, she doesn't cook the eggs. Really? Yeah. Just tosses them in raw? 
Raw eggs. Mm. She has eaten two eggs raw for decades since her doctor told her it would help with her anemia. Interesting. Yeah. And cookies. And cookies. What kind of cookies? I don't know. Isn't that that the more important detail of the story? Oh, no. Two raw eggs. But she eats cookies. She also said uh, another thing that's a key to long life is to not having um, anyone dominate you in your life. Hmm. That's her advice since she divorced in her late 30s, which was about 80 years ago. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Because her husband 80 years ago apparently was pretty dominant. That's right. And she is probably the inspiration for why Rocky could down raw eggs. Have you done that? Yeah. You ever tossed a raw egg down? I did, yeah. How would that go for you? Well, it pretty much went right through me. Yeah. Like a bullet. Right in my hip. (laughs) Not good for you, but um, it's keeping this young lady alive. Actually, sorry, it's keeping this really, really, really old lady alive. Yeah. 117 years old in November. How cool is that? So happy birthday to her. We will take a break. When we come back, we're going to get into the Thrive Life. And uh, the author of the Thrive Life is going to teach us how to to take your life back and, and how to learn to set goals. And and create a life you can be proud of. You only get one life to live, right? Stick with us. We'll help you uh, live it even better than you have been. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's a new month and a great time to make some new goals. Every minute you are changing into a new person for the better or for the worse. Today, we have therapist Thomas Winter uh, Winterman joining us again to discuss a book, The Thrive Life. And he's uh, here to help us understand how to have a life that we've always dreamed of and find the best in ourselves. Thomas, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Great. Uh, I think this is such a um, an important topic. One of the points that I know you make is we only have one life to live, right? We we probably ought to make the most of what we've got. That's it. That's it. That's right. And um, it's it's a little sobering, you know, when you stop and you think about it that way. That every minute, you know, every second, every hour that goes by, it's really never coming back. Mm. You know. At, at that point in time, it's gone, and whether you uh, you invested it, you used it, you wasted it, whatever you did, um, you can't take it back. No, it's there. It's it. And, yeah, you, you've already cast the die, kind of. Um, talk to me about uh, – the name of the book is the, Th- the Thrive Life? Yeah, it's a little bit of a mouthful. Yeah, it is. T- t- what is the Thrive Life? Well, the Thrive Life, it really came from my own personal experience, um, being a really fat guy for a long, uh, a bunch of years and living a life that was unfulfilling. You know, I was always looking for the next thing that could help me feel better about myself or the next uh, fad diet or the next thing that could get me moving or get me motivated. Um, Like I said, I was really overweight. I was up around 275 pounds. I was stuck in a terrible job. Um, I'd been kicked out of my local community college twice. Um, because I registered for classes and then didn't show up. And mm. I was really just a person who was searching. Um, and then one day I just had this this incredible aha road to Damascus sort of moment that really changed my life and started me on a new path. And so I wrote this book 
Um, it's based on my personal change, but also what I found in going through graduate school, the underlying psychology behind all of it. Yeah, because you're a psychologist, you're a counselor, you 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 work with people as well that um, that are going through this. I mean that that funk that you were in. It, it sounds like uh, something. Whether it's weight issues or it's just in a job we don't like or a failure to thrive, we hear a lot about uh, certain groups of people that are struggling to kind of thrive and, and find themselves. What um, in the book? I know uh, you you talk. One of the book chapters is called "Find Your Best You." Mm-hmm. Um, how do you? Because it seems like you had to go through a shift, right? You had to do something. Had to shift in your life and in your brain to. I guess to take to take your head somewhere else to make these changes. It did, um, and it really started with taking responsibility. I moved um, from what they would call the external locus of control to the internal. Uh, previously, I'd seen my life as sort of like blowing in the wind. You know, I was knocked from one spot to the other by my circumstances. You know, I couldn't help it. You know, I didn't feel like getting up to exercise, and that was somebody else's fault. I was eating. You know bad food every day and that was my parents fault or this was somebody else's fault Um, and one day I was working my job and it just hit me that I was entirely responsible for who I was Mm. and it was my choices and it was nobody else's and from that moment forward I took control and I decided to change my life for the better that's cool and um I mean, I guess part of that is knowing that that's an option, and then you got to know how to go about doing it. In the book, you start out with finding your best you. How do you, how do you know who you are and who you really can become? That's tough, and and for a lot of people, it's it's fun to fantasize about becoming this, you know, this great person who's super fit and in shape, and you know, real successful and makes a lot of money. So we always. We always tend to want to start with where we're going when we map out goals. Right. But I found that the most important process is the self-evaluation. And before you start knowing where you want to go, you really have to know where you are. Hmm. You have to put yourself on the map first and thoroughly and honestly take a look at yourself and who you are right now today. And from there, you can begin to plot where you want to go. But that first step is the self-evaluation. Yeah, it seems like we really want to skip that one. Yeah, it's not fun. But but it, you almost you won't know if you don't know who you are really. Like you got to know your strengths, but you got to know your weaknesses. I mean, I you can't just say, I, "Well, yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get my PhD." Because if you your weaknesses might be, well, I'm kind of lazy and I I really hate reading and I don't I don't like learning at all. I mean, if you don't know what your if you don't know who you are, you you won't know how to get there. Right, right. And one of the main points in the book, um, there's a chapter or a section called What's Your Name? And the whole point of that is to really say your name out loud and think about what sort of weight that carries, you know, what sort of reputation you have. And whenever we hear somebody else's name in conversation and we know the person, we immediately start thinking of them. Mm. But what do you think about when you hear other people's names? Is it good? Is it bad? Um, is it something that you want for yourself? And that's a really good exercise. To that is. Take a good self-evaluation. How do other people see me? What's my reputation? And then to take that responsibility, that that reputation is really your own creation, and you can mold that into whatever you want it to be. Mm. Say your name. and Because um, it's funny. It seems like when when you describe that funk that you were in, 
it might be easy from the funk to automatically see the negative of who you are. So do you, are you not more inclined to frame yourself negatively if you're already in that negative place? Sure, but it's, it's 100% necessary because I, I really believe that for anybody to change and for it to be lasting, true, real change, that there has to be a strong motivation for change. Nobody ever changed just thinking, ah, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. Um, there's got to be something within you that you're thoroughly dissatisfied with to really and truly move toward change. Hmm. Interesting. Now, yeah, you got That that might be part of hitting the bottom, or mm-hmm. you know, hitting the hitting the low. Another uh, point you make is to fake it till you make it. Uh, <laughs> I think we all think we know what that means. What What do you mean uh, when it comes to creating the thrive life? Well, there's this idea in choice theory and reality therapy that our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, and our body's physiology are all connected. Mm-hmm. And if you can make a change in just one of those things, then you can affect the other areas. And your actions are a real easy way to make intentional change, and then your thoughts, feelings, physiology will follow. And the idea behind fake it till you make it is even if you don't feel like doing something, do it anyways. Because eventually you'll come around and your feelings will start to change, your thoughts will start to change, and you'll become more positive about whatever it is you're engaging in just by forcing yourself to get in and do it. You're, you're, yeah, you're using actual research, theory, psychology, change the thinking by saying it enough, acting it out enough, feeling it enough, and you'll manifest it. Yes, definitely, definitely. And that's something that's, that works on a number of levels. Um, one way that it works a lot is with couples. You know, when you start, um, the romance is gone, you know, we we can't find the spark. Well, I would tell a husband, the next time you go out, pretend like it's your first date. Hmm. You know, act like it was the first time that you've ever gone out with her. How would you act? How would you treat her? Well, I'd do, you know, I'd hold the door for her, I'd pull out her chair, I'd, I'd smile at her. You start doing those things, and all of a sudden, the feelings start coming back. And it's, it's not so fake. It's not. It's not manufactured. The feelings are real, but they started with some intentional action. And uh, again, it's it doesn't take much, right? I mean, because you being different could then spark something different in others. So if all of a sudden I'm faking it, even though I'm not, whatever my goal is, the millionaire or whatever, um, right. then but as, as soon as I start acting. The role and, and kind of going down that road, others may start treating me differently. If I treat my wife like it's the first time I've dated her, she might start treating me like it was the first time we dated. Most definitely, and that's the idea. Um, came out a few years ago. The whole the love dare, yeah, um, and then the fireproof movie and all that, and that was really a great testament to this um, mindset of no matter you can't control another person, but you can control you. So if you stay steady and you are really intentional with your actions, you can affect change all throughout your life. Is what happens in the middle of this when we then, you know, hit a major dose of reality? I'm, uh, you know, I'm trying to understand the best me. I'm, I'm faking it till I'm making it. I'm doing these things, and then I'm still hit with the reality that my weight issue you know, blows my knee out when I'm climbing the stairs. Mm-hmm. What do I do when I have to, when I actually face failure in this effort to change? Um, in my mind, and I talk about this in the book as well, is 
we we really have to change our mindset. You know, as a culture, we have this almost binary attitude when it comes to success. Um, we it's either fail or pass. Um, but when you're when you're doing this, when you're trying to better yourself, when you're trying to make improvements, there's really no such thing as failure because no matter what happens, you've learned something. Mm. If you can gain something, and that's one of the things that we talk about in counseling is when you ask somebody to do something and they do it and they come back and, and it didn't work, instead of saying, what did you do wrong, we'll ask them, well, what did you learn? It changes a mindset. Maybe you learn next time. Maybe I can't do a thousand stair steps in 30 minutes, you know, right. so you might want to readjust that goal in the future. And maybe you didn't lose 25 pounds, but you lost five. And you know what? That's five more than you lost before. Mm. So there's, there's really a reframing and a changing of a mindset that can happen when you really get rid of the idea of failure and change it into what did I learn instead of why did I fail? Yeah, and, and the process of – yeah, it's such a great way to look at it. We do. We, we, we're so binary and dichotomizing, either-oring everything in our lives. Uh, but there's always an and uh, along with that, and we can learn from it. We'll take a break, come back more with Thomas Winterman, the author of the book um, The Thrive Life. Go to his website, thethrivelife.org, and uh, we can learn more about uh, about his great work. Stick with us. We'll come back, continue the discussion, helping you see the good in the world and become the good. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Every one of us at some point fall into a funk, into a dark space uh, where we, we, just, we just aren't living up to who we want to be. We may not even know what we can do anymore. Um, we're discouraged. And so we got to figure out how to create the Thrive Life, according to our guest, Thomas Winter, uh, Winterman. He is a counselor and a, um, a therapist and is from Florida, has been living this himself in his own life and figured out some pretty powerful steps, put those steps in his book, The Thrive Life. And today he's walking us through it. Uh, thank you so much, Thomas, for being with us. Thank you. Talk to me about, um, I mean, I know you, you, you use your real life experience, but you also bring in a lot of, uh, you know, counseling uh, principles and, and therapy uh, tools. What, what are some of the theories that, that you use as well along with this process of creating the Thrive Life? Well, the base theory that I use is choice theory and uh, what comes out of that, which is reality therapy which is this, this concept that everything that we do is a choice. Um, and we, we tend to lose sight of that with our automatic pilot minds. You know, we get up for work, we get a shower, we get dressed, and we forget that those are all choices. Right. We could, we could choose not to go to work. Our consequence might be getting fired, but we still have a choice. Mm. And it's this idea that we are completely and totally in control of our lives you know, outside of a few variables here and there, but for the most part, it's our choices that determine where we go. And much of our discontent might simply be believing we don't have a choice. Like, I have to go to work, but, I mean, the idea that I have to, if I could see that as, well, no, you're choosing to to agree to this process. I mean, right. you could go to a foreign country and live abroad for dollars, 
uh, day and, you know, you could make a different choice. There, that, maybe that is part of it. We feel this – as long as I believe I don't have a choice, uh, then I'm also not responsible either and I can't have an impact. That's right. And uh, another huge source of human suffering and angst comes from controlling things that we can't control. Um, we forget that we can control ourselves, but we want to control our environment. We want to control the people around us, our spouses, our kids. We want them to do exactly what we want them to do when we want them to do it, and we just lose our minds when they don't. Um, and we're not appreciating the fact that we can't change them. We can't force them to do anything. All we can do is control our reactions to any given situation. So, so true. What, um, what's some more advice that you give in the book so we can get into that thrive life? Um, one of the biggest things that I'll tell people about goal setting is that it's really a skill more than it is a talent. You know, people want to hop into goal setting December 31st and January 8th, they're done with it. You know, <laughs> the goal's out the window, they didn't make it. I'm a terrible person. I can never set goals. Not realizing that it's something that takes a lot of practice and it takes refining and it takes work to get to a point where you're successful at it. So by thinking, I mean that's it's it's a it's a it's something you can go work on, you can earn it, but it's, you know, it's like being physically fit. It's it, you can't just jump into it you got to learn the skills. You got to learn the equipment. You got to learn the diet. It's it's stuff you got to learn. That's right. And you're not you're not going to be a master goal setter from day one. You know you have to you have to go through it. You have to go through the trouble, and you have to work hard. And there's going to be a lot of bumps along the way, um, but with the practice, you get better. So true. What would you say as we wrap it up? Uh, I always like to know the one thing. What's the one th- piece of advice that you would give today for somebody that wants to, I mean, other than, of course, getting your book, uh, somebody that wants to get started and kind of recapture their life and, and get it going today? What's the one thing that would make the biggest difference today? I would say find one little tiny thing and do it. Make one really small change and make it so small that it's almost ridiculous, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, drink one cup of water instead of when you would have a soda. Um, tell your kids, I love you one more time than you would. It's the little changes that can snowball and they can build momentum and they can move into big changes. Mm-hmm. So for today, just do one little thing and then tomorrow do one more little thing. Love it. Love it. Great advice. Great advice from Thomas Winterman. And we appreciate uh, your work, Thomas, and The Thrive Life. Go to his website, thethrivelife.org. You can check out his work there. He's got a wonderful blog with um, some really interesting articles there to read as well. Okay. The Thrive Life. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Also, uh, follow up on Spencer's prediction about Game 6 of the World Series. Pretty accurate, I'm telling you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, let's shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Uh, Spencer and Jerem, find out what's going on with them today. Hello, gentlemen. Sports time, game seven. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. You killed it. Great prediction. I'm telling you. I'm, I'm serious. Last night, I thought about from you. Addison Russell. I thought that was crazy. Absolutely. Addison Russell has been an absolute beast for the Cubs. What do you think? Okay, tonight. Tonight. Great or terrible. <laughs> There's no in between. It's so bad and good. It, awesome. Do you, I mean, so is is that what does that do to your morale when you lose nine to three at home in front of your crowd? How does everybody come back tonight? Well, they'll come back, but they are freaking out just yes. like the New York yes. Yankees were in 2004 when they were up three games to none on the Boston Red Sox in the American League Championship Series, and the Red Sox won four oh, straight, including the final two yeah, in New York. That was I so cool. I feel like cool. the Indians are feeling like the Yankees were against the Red Sox in 04. <laughs> or the Cleveland Cavaliers opponent, Golden State Warriors, in the NBA Finals. Exactly. one situation, right? Yes. They know the opposite feeling. So <laughs> Tonight's epic. The Indians haven't won the World Series since 45. The Cubs haven't won since, what, 04? Four or six or something? 19? Oh, eight. They oh, eight. I'm being told. Yeah. Whoever wins, it's epic, right? I I personally want the Indians to win because I want the Cubs story to continue. Now, why? Why? Because the everybody in Chicagoland hates you for that. I don't care. The, la- <laughs> the last great American sports story that's been un- untold and unfinished is the Chicago Cubs winning a championship. Well, and, and they got to the World Series, and they'd be right there. Um, and it would stink that they lost, but they're really good. Like, I, I think that they'll be in position to be back. But the so, Cubs, I mean, don't you think, too, the story needs to end because people have had a hatred for goats ever since the Cubs story began. Yes. Well, that's self-imposed. The curse of the billy goat. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that wasn't someone else saying you're cursed with this. Yeah. It was a Cubs fan. Right. So, so I have a hard time being like, oh, I feel bad for you for the thing that you did to yourself. See, that's it. That's well. I wouldn't go to Chicago very soon. Oh my gosh! I'm telling you, Jerem, <laughs> they'll put a hit out on you. Be careful, man. Hey, um, no, that's that's called murder. Al Capone is on the lookout for Jerem Jordan. Al Capone's dead. By the way, a grand slam. Is he? Is yes. he dead? They opened the tomb, or what, they opened the. What did they open? They opened. Someone, someone compared. Uh, yeah, they opened his grave. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't someone, there. Someone compared our, our Big 12 coverage to the Al Capone like, tomb opening. Like, there was <laughs> nothing there. <laughs> they really? We're still going to look. Which one of you is Geraldo? <laughs> clearly, clearly me with my mustache. Clearly you yeah. with the stash. Yes. Boy, that's got to feel so good, though, to pound a Grand Slam in the World, in, in oh. the world Series. Can you imagine? No, Tell me how many kids have dreamed about that. That's Holy just cow. the 19th Grand Slam ever in the World Series. They've been playing the World Series for a long time. It was a best of nine series originally, which, thank goodness, this is only seven. And the guy's 22 years old. Yeah. What were you doing at 22, Jerem? Uh, I was a sophomore at Brigham. Yeah. As was I. Sophomore, yeah. BYU. I was rocking my iPod and my T-Mobile flip phone Jeez. after my I had LDS the Motorola Razor. Pink? Holy. It was black. <laughs> was, it a, was it a pink razor? Pink was razor? <laughs> You had the pink razor. Yeah, my daughter had that, too. The black razor. Oh, yeah, the black razor. That was the sweetest flip phone ever. No, that was for sure. That was the fun pack. Yeah. Got the free T-Mobile one. I was still carrying my brick phone, my huge brick phone in a wagon. Nokia 5530 Mm -hmm. or whatever it was. So you remember. People were like, is that a satellite phone? You're like, no. (laughs) Nope. 
Is that is that your workout weight? Yes, it is. <laughs> um, what's uh, okay? I had another request about what what's going on with is is BYU's defense recovered now from the bye week? Are they are they back? I think everybody should feel pretty good because they've had well, they will have had sixteen days between games. Yeah, this is good. They yeah, Butch Pau said he's uh, he feels great. Um, Jamal Williams is good to go. Troy Warner says he feels 100%. Mm. So that, that's the good news. The bad news is that uh, Travis Tuiloma, uh, star defensive uh, nose tackle for BYU, is out for the year. Mm. He had an injury in the Boise State game. He's done. So his career is over, which stinks because he was a really good yeah. uh, wrecker in the middle there. Crusher. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. That's a bummer. What's, uh, what's on your show? You're still doing the show today, right? Of course we're doing the show. Okay. I don't know kind why. Of a, I, kind of a crazy question is that? I don't know why I keep doubting it. <laughs> but uh, what what's on your show today? Well, besides the game seven conversation and how Jerem has declared his soul to the Cleveland Indians for the night, <laughs> go tribe. <laughs> we are discussing BYU's drive for five straight wins. Wow! Is it five and zero or bust for BYU to finish the regular season? Wow! And the, and the bowl game? Like, do they have to win all five for fans to be like, "Yep, okay." I'm, I feel pretty good. Would four and one be okay? I don't think anyone would tolerate three and two. No, but, but nope. would four and one be okay? Because mm. BYU has the third highest win out percentage in the country, according to ESPN. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, so is it five? Like if BYU won nine games, I'd feel pretty good. They would have won eight of nine. They would have won five in a row. Yeah, yeah. We'd feel pretty good, and we'd go, oh, only four losses by eight points. That's pretty good. That That's was a fun, tough season. schedule. That was a great year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But would four and one be okay? Mm. You know, we'll, we'll discuss this. Okay. The next four games for BYU, not that compelling. Cincinnati is is interesting. Utah State is interesting. UMass and Southern Utah, we'll do our best to hopefully see a bunch of stats in those games <laughs> from Jamal Williams and company. Uh, and the bowl game, I think, will be compelling. Absolutely. Because it's going to be a, it'll be a, a good San Diego State team or a good Wyoming team. Maybe a uh, rematch with Boise State. Ah. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting regardless. Of who it is because of the old Mountain West. Hey, but I heard – so maybe you just mentioned it, but Jamal Williams is back. Healthy, as good as ever. He is back. Kalani Satake said he is good to go. And I think if he is healthy for the four games remaining, he's going to – I mean, he probably won't play a ton against Southern Utah, but I think he'll go gangbusters in three of the four games, and he'll be in well the first over – three quarters. Yeah, he'll, be, he'll be probably over twelve or 1,300 yards at that point. That is – oh, that's amazing. He needs 640 for the BYU record. Yeah, single season. Single season. Holy so cow! That's still a, a sizable chunk. That is five games left. That it's attainable. Is. That's for sure. Had he played against Boise State, it'd be a little easier. But it puts him on par with Luke Staley if he does break the record because of the games that he's had to sit out, right? Mm-hmm. But he, he would have played one more game than Luke. And he oh, can. Luke game. played eleven of yeah. the fourteen. He'll have a he'll have a big blowout game no too. Luke also had twenty four touchdowns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, therein lies the difference. <laughs> yards, I'll see your yards and raise your touchdowns. Touchdowns. You know what I mean? Um, okay, it's, it's obviously going to be a great show. Yes. And uh, tonight I will be thinking of you as I watch the World Series. Okay. In my pajamas. A couple T- of other T- notes uh, for your uh, yeah. listeners to think about before they s- stay with us and listen to BYU Sports Nation, Matt. Jimmer Fredette continues to light it up in China. Jeez. And... Jeff Judkins is back, former NBA guy, 
previewing the BYU women's basketball season, which they tip off an exhibition game tonight. Play tonight. Come support the girls. Your your Judkins imitation is incredible. It also sounds like Mr. Magoo. Jerome. Hey. He really. Hey, let's play ball. I played for the Celtics and Larry Bird. And you know that. He's got that scratchy voice. Yeah. He's, so he's always in postseason form. He's so great. He but, is like, the greatest human. I mean, he's got such a good soul. Yes. yes. He's, he's awesome. Yes. We love it. He's great. This is my favorite show. I watch every day. <laughs> he's why, he might be listening to this right now. Probably is. Good luck no, with that no one, Jeremy. <laughs> he's getting the team ready. That's true. He's right. He's pumping up the team. Okay, guys, have a great show. Knock him dead. Thank you. Thank you Peace out. See you, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, he really does imitate Jeff really well. Jeff's got that scratchy voice okay so much to do so little time to do it first was that your william shatner impression no do you want to do william so much to do so little time on the show okay that's what you were doing i didn't i didn't hear it that way is that how i sounded just for a brief moment okay um you know Two police officers died today. Did you hear this? Tragedy. Just, I don't want to throw a big wet blanket on everything, but it was crazy. And so um, have prayers for them as well, right? Families, these police officers go out there, and again, they've been getting a lot of bad press because of some bad officers doing stupid things. And um, But these two officers were sitting in a just sitting in their patrol cars, two different places in Iowa, and, and uh, were shot, killed. And they now have one suspect um, in custody, uh, and I don't know how much more they're going to get. I don't know what other information is coming out about that now. But do keep uh, them in your prayers. It, again, you. the scary thing is, for example, in those areas, now they're having – they're doubling up the police officers, but they only have 40-something police officers anyway. So you're getting really half the coverage you used to get. So no matter how mad you are at police officers, the minute we start losing our police, we lose a lot of uh, a lot of uh, safety as well. So watch out for that. And as we wrap up the show, I do want to uh, talk about one Halloween story that we can't we can't overlook – it's it really is a it's a hero story I think of a dad who who whose daughter he and his daughter were trick or treating on an airplane and he made sure that everyone on the airplane could help the daughter because they were flying when she should have been trick or treating listen to this hero story of the day a father on a flight from Boston on Halloween night is winning the praise after he brought his young daughter down the aisle to go trick-or-treating so that she didn't miss out on the spooky holiday while the family was traveling. Stephanie Kahan, who was on the plane from Boston to San Francisco, said the father approached passengers during the Virgin American flight out of Logan International Airport and handed them treats with a small note attached. My three-year-old daughter Molly was bummed that she wouldn't be able to go trick-or-treating this year due to the uh, this flight, so I decided to bring trick-or-treating to her. He said, if you are willing, uh, with my little, uh, uh, when my little donut comes down the aisle, please drop this into her basket. You'll be making her Halloween. If you're unwilling, no worries. Just pass the treat back to me. Thanks so much. The words were typed up and, uh, you know, out in orange letters. And they, the, the dad handed him down the aisle. Then he brought his daughter down the aisle. 
Everybody seemed really touched and willing and excited to participate. They said it was a very heartwarming moment. And uh, the cute little daughter had her basket filled up with treats and tricks. And again, life was good. How cool is that? A dad worrying about his daughter, making sure she still has the experience. Isn't that fun to know that just even the hero can be the dad? It could be you as a mom. It could be what you do every single day. You don't have to do big things to be big heroes. Sometimes we just need parents to do their jobs, you know, neighbors to be there, friends to be available, heroes. That's why we do the show. We're out of here, my friends. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Until tomorrow, let's take care of each other. Let's watch each other's backs. Pray for the families of those officers that have fallen, and let's make it a great day. We'll talk again tomorrow.